Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. This is episode four. Today we are looking at On Her Majesty's Secret Service, a Christmas special. And I suppose the yings to my yang would agree that this is indeed a Christmas film. Hello over there in Canada, Ontario, Joshua Dwight Gordon Taylor, the BFG, and Jeff Chapman. How are you gentlemen doing? Ho, ho, ho. We're doing great. <laughs> is it a Christmas film because it's set at Christmas? That's the big well, diehard question. That, yeah, I see what you did there. Very good. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Uh, especially in the last few years with pop culture being so big uh, and now everyone having to have, you know, you have to tweet at least once or twice or you'll lose your Facebook profile apparently is how it goes <laughs> nowadays. But uh, I would say I would say maybe yes. And I think also maybe uh, Josh and I were talking about this while we were trying to uh, drink our coffee and not spill it this morning is that – does that mean that it gets retroactive kudos because it's it's an earlier film than Die Hard? Mm-hmm. It, that's true. That's it is. Good. Yeah, it's it's interesting debate. It's, I it's think like, we... was it grandfathered in? Was it like, is it like a grandfather class? Is it therefore? <laughs> we don't know. Well, I don't, I don't know either. I ask because I, I never got involved in the Die Hard debate, and of course, I appreciate in pop culture it's quite a big thing now, but yeah. never really got excited or my pee hot about that one. Mm-hmm. Fair. Fair enough. Fair, Fair enough. But on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is, of course, the focus of today, randomly selected by our roulette wheel of love, this film is a Christmas film in many ways. We've got Christmas going on all around it. Gifts are a very central part to the plot of the master villain. And I don't know if features of Christmas make a film a Christmas film or if there needs to be something more intrinsic, something more thematic. Exactly. I think they contrast Christmas and all its joy and, and happiness with darkness. That's mm. my feeling. And I will probably illustrate this theme throughout the podcast. Probably. Okay. I don't understand why I sound like a robot, but that's pretty much my thought on that. Well, before we get started, there's there's a lingering question. It's really the white elephant in the room. And I hope you guys can answer it for me. Do you know how Christmas trees are grown? Hmm. I would assume with... In the North Pole? With care? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's wrong. Per- permafrost? <laughs> no, that's also wrong. <laughs> um, it takes, it takes rainbows. And... Sunshine? Thank well, you. Fun. Yes, it does. It takes... You haven't practiced this song. Guys, I'm disappointed. What are we here for? If not to oh, sing. I was too busy. Oh, wow. I was too busy like Bond running through through the town and not worrying about and, and not worrying about the freaking Christmas music going on. <laughs> I did appreciate the music to go along with that, but you're right. We I'm will about- talk about that. We will talk about that indeed. Right. This is going to be a great show, guys. I'm excited about this. As you say, it is kind of like a Christmas special. The, the selection of the film was random and fortuitous, but here we are talking about the sixth James Bond installment on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Goodbye, Connery. Hello, Lazenby. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I'll go into that a little bit on my um, uh, Cubby's Corner when we talk about the production of the film. Um, I just think it's kind of funny, too. Sir, you use the word, you know, like fortuitously and how we went from, you know, you only uh, the living daylights to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. The director of The Living Daylights, John Glenn, he was second unit director on Honor Magic Secret Service. Yeah, that's right. This is uh, this was a big, big film for him professionally. And that's right. it, it kind of got him in the director's chair not soon after. It was almost his Peter Hunt moment. In, yeah, in that's, a a, that's a good way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was uh, 
Man, what a solid production this film is. It, well, let's get into it, guys. Let's get into it. Uh, before, Actually, before we do that, let's just get a few more pleasantries out of the way. It's been a few weeks since we've met. How, how are things going over there? How are you guys doing? Well, it's uh, definitely the Christmas vibe around here. Uh, I've been busy, you know, just um, working away and, and uh, getting everything ready for Christmas. So Same, same. Yeah. All right, so we that's it. Christmas, okay, right. Pleasant trees. We got a done. Christmas tree, though. Oh, did you? Yep. Excellent. Yeah, it's the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It's great. Oh, right. Okay, so it's it's uh, skinny. It is, but it's perfect size for our apartment. As, and it's a pop culture reference. It's a pop culture it's reference, perfect. which is perfect for us because honestly, I didn't want to pull a Christmas vacation and have our tree go through the window. Oh, yeah. guys, I gotta I gotta interrupt you there. Christmas. I, I watched that last night. Sarah and I sat down and watched that before bed last night. Do you know what? That Because that's one of the films that we, we like to watch each year, like millions of other people, I'm sure. But we... We forgot to uh, we forgot to watch it last year, or something happened. You know, we didn't get to it. So watching it last night, there are some scenes in that film, and some of the performances are just excellent. You know, like Randy Quaid is yeah, he's phenomenal. Quaid. He's so good in that. He's hilarious. His trick is he's actually crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I I think that uh, Beverly D'Angelo is really good in that as well. She is. She's great. She's such a believable like mom like that. Okay, so I just want to add to that. Yeah. Is that that is my all-time favorite Christmas movie and mm. again the reason for this is, again it's more like um, memory lane because I watch it every year it came out I saw it in the theaters when I was seven with my dad oh cool and so that's our that's our tradition I even put and get this I even put a beanie baby yes I still have one of those mm-hmm. uh, squirrel in my tree as a homage <laughs> to the film that's excellent what about the cat under the chair do you burn a cat uh, well actually I do have or... stuffed animals uh, under the tree and yes one I meant that not a, re- that not a real one no 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 I'm allergic to cats oh right okay <laughs> oh. Um, yeah but anyway so that I, I love that film so good good on you for watching that last night and that's okay yeah, I'll, I'll let it I'll let it slide that you didn't watch it last year because you know you're a, you're, a, you're a young parent a busy man but making up for it when I can you know Exactly. And that's all that counts. Mm. What about you, Josh, while we're on the subject of Christmas films? Which one uh, tickles your fancy this time of year? Christmas Vacation is great. I also really love Elf. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's um, it. Yeah. It's everywhere, man. Like, I mean, every station carries well, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, I think it's because it's a newer Christmas film that really just blew up. Because even though it's from 2003, it doesn't feel like it's that long ago. doesn't until really. Until you start to watch it and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, man, Zoe Deschanel is pretty young here. And mm-hmm. even Will Ferrell's like, not that old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's funny it's it's actually a very very funny movie and man they, they've just marketed the crap out of that because anything christmas they market the crap out of now if you notice uh and uh i have to say though like um it's just it's it's a really funny movie like i, I enjoy watching this uh every year as well actually mm. that is a the, good one that and chuck jones uh and, and, and animating the grinch who stole christmas too well, uh, yes the or original one yeah we watched that last night my daughter and i watched that actually was awesome. Was that the first time she saw it? First time she saw it. And I, I mean, I, I talked to her, I talked her through the story first because I've got the book and we've been reading the book a, a little bit. Uh, and my mom just, you know, just returned back home after a little visit. And so she was kind of talking to her a bit about the Grinch and, you know, yeah, I think she was a bit scared and I certainly wasn't forcing it on her, but you know, she's like, Oh, she spot, saw kind of something of it on TV and said, what's that? And so I decided, I said, well, you know, I can show you this and we can, so we sat down and talked about it and watched it together. And, uh, yeah, she she did like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That is good. I it's, I feel like that's a canonical Christmas tale. You know, 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. that, that's un- inarguable. Anyway, it's, speaking of canonical, there's the segue we were looking for. Ah, okay. <laughs> I get it. That, yeah, good. Back into the subject uh, at, at present, exactly what we, what we have to talk about. So, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, this is our third film. As Josh said a moment ago, uh, the series has so far taken us through a strange, powerful yeah. beginning, really, with Golden Eye followed by The Living Daylights. And The Living Daylights was a film that we all enjoyed, and we all benefited, I think, from going back and watching again. But you guys liked it a little bit more than I did on the whole, I think. <laughs> but our, but I think our scores were actually very close. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's just different aspects that we like more. Exactly, exactly. Which is, uh, I think, uh, is sort of a testament. Or less. (laughs) To a a good film. It's like people like it for different reasons, but almost the same amount. (laughs) So, moving on then, where were you when you first saw On Her Majesty's Secret Service? It's a Bond film that predates all of us. The first Bond film we've studied thus far that predates all of us. Yes. Um, Where were you? What are your first memories of it? Uh, well, I can say that I received the video ca- cassette of the film from my grandmother, as usual. Um, to be honest, I wasn't really interested in the movie actually until my like I just wasn't. I was more into the Roger Moore films, and I wasn't sure if I would enjoy that one. I said it was too old. I was I don't know. I was being really stupid, and my mom. <laughs> you, were, you were being young. I was being young. Yeah, exactly. And then my mom made us watch it at Christmas time, and. I, I found it really, I don't know, I just didn't really love it. It wasn't until, um, I guess, when I started getting into Bond again in the late 90s, you know, when you kind of uh, revitalized that enemy Scott. And um, I, I, saw the, I've, I saw the film then, and I was just like blown away by it. Absolutely blown away. Hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah. for, for my part, you know, at the, at the time of this release... This was rather maligned, I guess. You know, just a couple of years before, I remember one of the special features talked about this, didn't it? That uh, uh, You Only Live Twice was a, f- a film starring Sean Connery, obviously, but Sean Connery is James Bond was the tagline on, on the yeah, posters. And, and you know, to, to go from him to this, that, that really it got people upset. And we'll talk about that when we go into the reception of the film. But it was, yes. always, it was always going to be that way, right? However, yeah. I guess somewhere in around the 90s, Josh, when we, got, when we did get back into Bond after that hiatus in the late 80s to the early 90s, maybe somewhere in there, it became, I'm going to say, even trendy to view this film in different in a, in a, with a different lens to view the film perhaps more technically more canonically more mythological yeah if, if you see what i mean yeah and, it wasn't until the late 90s and the, and the 2000s that ohmss has a lot of retrospective criticism that's right yeah and, and i think i probably I, I think my first experience of it was was kind of celebrating it because i was very much into bond when i first saw it you know i was into the films and i had to take it seriously because that's just what a bond fan does and so this experience of going back and, and really sinking into it, looking at it technically, uh, has reinforced some of my feelings, and it's also challenged some of my my feelings. So the things that I admired about it then, I still do admire, but there is some room for movement here on my goalposts, and we'll we'll talk about it. But that that's kind of certainly, I, you know, I came to it in that excited bond immersion. Absolutely. How about you, Jeff? Well, again, it, <laughs> the first time I watched this, I think it was before, you know, we have, um, I, w- I think I was very young. Because I, I, I do remember, it's one of those things 
where you know when you, you watch a movie and it was a long time ago and you have these, these sort of vague sort of uh, memories I think I was quite young. I don't think I was. Again, I th- when I watched a lot of these movies, I think I was about ten or under, and I think I watched them with my dad. So, I, it's again when I'm watching these and I, I'm loving it is I'm watching it kind of like watching it for the first time again. Yeah, sure. Um, but I think I remember watching it. I always loved the ski scene, and because I remember watching that movie, and then I'm pretty sure I watched uh, We Were Spies with like Chevy Chase, and I was like, I used to. Think they were almost like the same movie they blend, because they make they make a joke of the species. They blend scene, in, you know, they blend, they, yeah. At least for they me at that, at that age, it kind of blended in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, <laughs> Honor, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a little more serious, but I did enjoy it. Uh, and obviously, when when you're a kid, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, watching like a 60s movie, it's quite it's quite different, right? So, but today, what I have to say is um, again watching it for the like almost watching it for the first time again. I was very impressed, and uh, I'm excited to, to talk about my experiences with it. Excellent. Well, let's move a step closer to that. Josh, you got some information on the production of this significant film. Yes, I certainly do. Indeed, Up Cubby's Corner. Um, Not so- Up Cubby's Corner. That sounds crude. Opening Up Cubby's Corner. <laughs> yeah. So after You Only Live Twice was released in 67, it was also announced that Connery was done with the role of 007. Yay. Uh, Ian Fleming's 1963 novel, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, was the next Bond tale to be adapted by Eon Productions. The only problem was they needed a new Bond. So Timothy Dalton is said to have been offered the role at the time, but he turned it down, claiming he was too young, which is true, as he was 26 at the time. And yet, the role serendipitously would go to the 28-year-old, 28, so older than 26, I guess, uh, George Lazenby. He was an Australian male model, expatriate, living in England, and a sub-time television commercial actor that caught Broccoli and the director's eye in a big fry chocolate manufactory ad. If you see the ad, uh, it's basically George Lazenby coming into, I guess, uh, I guess, I don't know, he's on the Thames on a boat, and he has a big crate of a big wooden crate that says Big Fry on it, and everyone's like cheering and and and, and like he's like a, a hero come for triumph. It's a really weird commercial. Oh yeah. Well, that that just you know, there's hope for any of us then. Absolutely. That's what it comes down to, yeah. I could be cast as James Bond right off the street. It almost reminded me of a Mentos commercial, just with like better dressed people. The Fresh Maker. <laughs> but um, do they still run those over there? Uh, they show them, but we don't make new ones that I know no. of. All I know is that for some reason now Mentos does chocolate, and that scared me. So, oh, you're kidding? That's that is a recent development. Yeah, I mean, like chocolate and mint, but like just stick. In my opinion, just stick to one or the other. But that's just why that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. yeah. Well, in this case, big fried ch- chocolate is what got the, the uh, everyone to notice Lazenby. So, be- but before he was even cast as Bond, Broccoli wanted the role of Tracy, uh, the Countess Teresa de Vincenzo to go to Bridget Bardot. But she was contracted to film a movie with Sean Connery. Mm. Ouch. Second choice was the best choice as popular Avengers star and British stage actress Diana Rigg was cast in the role of the ill-fated Mrs. Bond. Mm. Peter Hunt, who had edited previous Bond films along with some second unit directing, finally got his shot in the big leagues and brought his unique vision and experience to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Rigg, when Rigg... And Lazenby, when they were confirmed, the remainder of the film was cast. 
Telly Savalas, Kojak himself, replaced Donald Pleasance from You Only Live Twice as Ernst Stavro Blofeld. German screen actress Il Steppet was hired to play Ilsa Steppet, sorry, was hired to play Fräulein Irma Bunt. Peter Hunt's next door neighbor, actor George Baker, best known in, in the future for his portrayal of Tiberius and I Claudius, mm-hmm. jumped at the chance of playing the, the baronet from the College of Arms, Sir Hilary Bray. Bernard Lee returned to play M, and Lois Maxwell reprised her role as Miss Moneypenny. Uh, Italian actor Gabriel Forzetti rounds out the cast as Tracy's mafioso father, Marco Andraco. And of course, a wide variety of women around the world were cast to play Blofeld's Angels of Death. The screenplay fell to the wit of Richard Maybaum, who previously wrote You Only Live Twice. But he and Cubby agreed that there would be less gadgets in this adaptation and that it would be faithful to the source material than the previous Bond films. The novel's tragic ending and the powerful and exciting story that led to said ending needed to be preserved. Maybaum wanted to have some true thespianism in the scenes with Savalas and Rigg, so he hired screenwriter Simon Raven to come up with highfalutin dialogue that we see in the film. The principal photography of the film began in Bern on October 21st, 1968, where they filmed the famous aerial shot of Bond ascending to the Alpine Room to meet Blofeld's Angels of Death. The town of Murren played the role of the resort town adjacent to Pisgloria, where several of the film scenes take place on location. Cinematographer Michael Reed worked closely with Hunt, conveying a style miles away from the in-studio aesthetic with big sets that the previous Bond films espoused, offering an on-location shooting in the Swiss Alps, Bern, the Portuguese coast, and the environs of London, with the studio work chiefly done at Pinewood Studios. The soaring alpine vistas and long shots of aerial ski actions were the first of its kind, as well as some of the downhill ski point-of-view work by Willy Bogner, a skilled cameraman and skier. The ski action sequences were headed up by second unit director John Glenn, who would go on to direct several Bond films in the 80s, i.e. The Living Daylights. The famous stock car rally chase we see was shot in an icy field in 30 below temperature with skilled Ford Motor Company rock star racer Eric Zeminska working with Peter Hunt. There were rumors of tension between Lazenby and Rig on the set, but there was a lot of things that the mainstream media seemed to be going after the film for. The fact that Connery wasn't in the film was a big thing. Uh, the report is that she ate garlic before her kissing scenes with Lazenby. But according to both Hunt and Lazenby, everyone was professional at the end of the day, despite tensions that would occur on any movie set. So a lot of the press seems to be a lot of trying to build up a lot of the stuff that Connery was in here. They were almost trying to sink the movie before it happened. It seemed to be the agenda, I suppose. I guess because they were going with the public um, uh, disenchantment that Connery wasn't back and they were kind of echoing that and propelling that. Um, I guess we'll get into that when we talk about the reception, though. Um, Lazenby seemed to have a bit of a, a big head, according to rumors. He showed up at a party uh, that Barbara Broccoli, um, not Barbara Broccoli, sorry, but um, Broccoli's wife arranged. And uh, he was basically, uh, everyone was invited. It was a whole for the cast and crew. But he showed up and he wanted to uh, be the star. And Broccoli pretty much told him off. So there's a lot of these rumors of tension. But at the same time, everyone seems to be working together, making a professional um, well-made film. And that's really the story of On Her Majesty's Secret Service um, over over those years, the two years that it was in production. How would you say um, it turned out, Scott? Well, <clears throat> it's just interesting listening to, to the, all of that 
um, particularly the rumors of tension on the set and how the media was trying to play those up. The the film, uh, the, the film was received at the box office pretty well. Its production budget was fifty one point seven million, and it pulled in domestically one hundred and forty seven point four million. So it made its budget. Oh yeah, and worldwide, oh Jesus, did it did it make its budget? Definitely five hundred and thirty million worldwide box office return and its return on investment remember that's really the figure that helps us understand best how much these films are making because that's your money spent versus money gained it uh it returned on investment 925 percent so that's makes it the 10th most lucrative james bond film golden eye was 13th on the list of 24 and the living daylights is 18th though so although you know although feelings might not have been great about connery uh, given the cost of production and the money pulled in, there was there was still a curiosity and an interest and a desire to see more James Bond, even if the people were grumbling as they walked into their seats. Yeah, the the fandom was there. Was oh the- yeah, certainly was. Yeah, I mean, people didn't give up on James Bond; they just got a bit pissy with him. Exactly. I, I mean, that's that's the best I can summarize it. I'm, I'm sure I some guess people... compared to Sherlock Holmes, I mean, he's been played by many actors, even by that point, by 1969, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so people were, were were happy with the character, and they wanted to see what the next iteration of him would be like, and and that's totally yeah. understandable. Mm-hmm. And people are also fans of Fleming's novels, so they wanted to see his his other stories adapted as well. Yeah, I think that's true. At this time, Fleming's novels were still. We're still kind. I mean, he's only been dead a couple of years, a few years, and his novels are still very much in the milieu, right? It's yes. they're not like things of the past too much. And so, yeah, I think you're right. It's not just James Bond, the the, the films that are drawing people in, as perhaps many cinema goers today act on, but also the books and the the idea of him still being a budding, you know, hero on screen. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it, I'm just curious to see what, you know, what the public thought about Lazenby, because if you uh, if you ever seen any of the features that they have on the making of Under Matters of Secret Service, it's quite interesting. Um, are, when that when I told you that anecdote about uh, Lazenby showing up for the party by Mrs. Broccoli for the cast and crew, and he's, you know, he's all fat headed about, you know, why wasn't I officially invited to this party? Broccoli tells Lazenby, he says that, you know, uh, you're not a star because you say you're a star. You're not a star because I say you're a star. You're a star when the people say you're a star. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty humbling. It's also very true, isn't it? It really is. Well, I've, I've done something a little bit different here. I do have contemporary review from the New York Times, of which I'll, I'll share you part. Uh, I've also then got a couple of more modern things. One of them is a blog entry by director Steven Soderbergh. I wanted to share that because I thought as a, a film school graduate yourself, Josh, you'd appreciate that. And the two mm-hmm. of you guys are quite um, big up on it. And Sto- Soderbergh's work is, is rather, you know, well-received and, and critically acclaimed in its own right. So I thought it'd be interesting to share with you his opinion. And it's not too long. And I've got a 2014 article uh, from The Guardian, but I suppose I'll start with with parts of a New York Times review written on December 19th or published December 19th by A.H. Weiler in The New York Times. The film, by the way, was released uh, on the 19th of December and the London premiere was a day earlier on the 18th. So Weiler writes in The New York Times in 69... Serious criticism of such an esteemed institution like James Bond would be tantamount to throwing rocks at Buckingham Palace, but it does call for a handful of pebbles. 
Devotees will note that Sean Connery, the virile, suave conqueror of all those dastards and dames and the five previous capers, has given up his 007 Bond credentials to George Lazenby, the 30-year-old Australian newcomer to films. He's tall, dark, handsome, and has a dimpled chin. But Mr. Lazenby, if not a spurious Bond, is merely a casual, pleasant, satisfactory replacement. For the record, he plays a decidedly second fiddle to an overabundance of continuous action, a soundtrack as explosive as the London Blitz, and flip dialogue and characterizations set against some authentic, truly spectacular Portuguese and Swiss scenic backgrounds caught in eye-catching colors. One must say amen to a colleague's observation. I never expected to see Switzerland defoliated like this. It should be reported that the producers and distributors already have rung up a reported 82,200,000 on their first five Bond issues. It's not ungallant to report that Bond marries Miss Rigg, who is gunned down and killed by Savalas on their honeymoon, so it is reasonable to expect that Bond inevitably will be loving, shooting, and running again. <laughs> The reason spoiler, I, I've only shared the movie for everybody. Well, the, the the reason I've only featured two of those two two of the paragraphs from that review is because most of it, it, it reads more like a plot summary, to be perfectly honest. And I think I think there is a a timidness about slamming Lazenby too much. You know, mm. um, I only read three different reviews from time of release. And each of them played it really soft like this. They weren't slamming him. They were simply comparing him to being, you know, like like this guy says, a casual, pleasant, satisfactory replacement. So the idea is still certainly there that Bond is Connery. And they're, they're highlighting the film around the actor instead of the actor. Yes. Well, I think it's they're probably also trying to be diplomatic because they don't necessarily want to um, bash the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's tough because who, like the thing is, is there, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So... If they had, if they had bashed Lazenby, and let's say he would have done four more, you know, just one of those things, and maybe just this would have looked off. But I, I don't think, you know. Well, I don't know. I mean, like thinking with critics. I mean, even back then, well, I, mean, no, I mean, the people like you know Pauline Kale or or Rex Reed or whatever. I mean, those people they had unabashed criticism. Like they, you know, they were, Anthony Boucher. Anthony Boucher, yeah, to, for another one, for example. There's just people like they're critics. Critics, you know, they had balls back then. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And and we don't know how many nowadays are just shills for the corporations. But back then, I just feel like I'm surprised actually, given the fact that the media was kind of after the movie while it was being made. All of a sudden, there's kind of like. Uh, Maybe because it was just so hyperbole about how bad it could have been that it actually was was you look you I guess they lowered their standards going in and they actually enjoyed it more than they thought they would. I think that might be part of it too, actually. Yeah. That's my theory. Yeah. Well, there's there's no doubt that the attitude generally was that Lazenby is not a great James Bond. Yeah. That was that was the initial feeling. But everybody was so used to Sean Connery. There's always going to be that reaction. Well, that's and can exactly, you trust that reaction? You know, exactly. Right. That's well, the whole of course, thing. yeah. But I mean that that that's that's exactly it. Yeah. Anyway, moving ahead now, just to share a couple of other interesting uh, things that I thought. Um, The Guardian newspaper, Stuart Heritage. First things first, we need to talk about George. Lazenby isn't Connery. He lacks a swagger, the element of constant danger that his predecessor and successor, since he returned to the role for Diamonds Are Forever, made his own. His voice is a bit all over the place, like someone trying to do an impression of Tom Hardy's Bane. It doesn't help that he spends a huge portion of the film pretending to be a bespeckled milk-toast man called Hilary Bray, nor that he was partially dubbed by George Baker. But what Lesenby does have, when he's allowed, is brute strength. Less slender than Connery, he's better equipped for stunt work, like in the pre-title sequence where he basically body-slams a baddie into a tent. 
His awkwardness, too, ends up being his major strength. None of the other Bond actors could do vulnerability very well, but whether intentionally or not, Lesenby is an open sore. He's ruffled more easily, cut out more. He even displays palpable fear at one point. Not to bang on about it too much, but the final few moments of Honor Majesty's Secret Service are what send the whole thing into the stratosphere. After defeating Blofeld, Bond rolls around in the snow with a St. Bernard for a moment or two, then almost immediately afterwards he's married. Diana Rigg cries with happiness. They cut the cake. Money Penny's heart's broken, but puts on a brave face. They drive away to embark on their honeymoon. They discuss the family they're going to have. It's the first ending to a James Bond film that isn't just sex as cathartic reaction to death. For once, maybe for the first time, he's actually content. And then she dies. That's how the film ends, with James Bond sobbing and cradling his murdered wife, refusing to believe that she's really gone. It's a sucker punch, and there isn't a single trace of redemption, no matter how hard you look. There are no quips, no raised eyebrows, just the stark image of a bullet hole in a windscreen. Bond had allowed himself to be human, and he paid the price. <laughs> so the Guardian newspaper is a left-of-center publication over here. I guess you wouldn't call it the rival newspaper of the times, but I guess you kind of, or of the, uh, of the evening telegram or something like that, but I guess, I guess you kind of would. Kind know, of like National Post here in Canada? Well, I don't know. The Post kind of flip-flops, doesn't it? They, it, they, it really does. Maybe Globe and Mail? Yeah, I guess, it, yeah. I guess, yeah, it's more like the Globe and Mail type thing. It's a huge, huge uh, paper. I mean, it has a sister paper too, The Observer, which comes out on, on Saturdays. Anyway, the last thing I want to share with you is from Steven Soderbergh, uh, director. Having made films, I feel were not entirely understood or appreciated upon their initial release, or ever even. I have a soft spot, about two inches in diameter, just below my right armpit, for films that endured a similar fate. In this case, I believe Peter Hunt made a great Bond film that wasn't considered great when it came out. For me, there's no question that cinematically, On Her Majesty's Secret Service is the best film and the only one worth watching repeatedly for reasons other than pure entertainment. Certainly, it's the only Bond film I look at and think, I'm stealing that shit. Shot to shot, this movie is is uh, beautiful in a way none other of the Bond films are. The anamorphic compositions are restlessly arresting, and the editing patterns of the action sequences are totally bananas. It's like Peter Hunt, who cut the first five Bond films, took all the ideas of the French New Wave and blended them with Eisenstein and Cuisinart to create a grammar that still tops today's how-fast-can-you-cut aesthetic. Because the difference here is that each one of the shots, no matter how short, are real shots, not just additional coverage from the hosing-it-down school of action. So there, is an, so there is a unification of the aesthetic of the first unit and the second unit that doesn't exist in any other Bond film. And speaking of action, there are as many big set pieces in On Her Majesty's Secret Service as any Bond film ever made. And if that weren't enough, there's a great score by John Barry, some really striking sound work. And what can you say about Diana Rigg that doesn't start with the word wow? So, what's wrong with it? George Lazenby. But not for the reasons you might think. I actually like him. A lot and think he could have made a terrific Bond had he continued. Allegedly, he decided before the shoot was over that he would only play the part once. And what seemed obvious to me, though, is no one was helping him during the shoot or the edit. They won't even let him finish a fucking sentence on screen. It feels like everyone was so focused on what he wasn't, Sean Connery, that they didn't take time to figure out what he was, a cool-looking dude with a genuine presence and great physicality. For instance, they should have known that a lot of the one-liners that just would have worked with Connery don't work with Lazenby. This isn't because he's bad, it's because his entire effect is different, less glib. 
This, to me, is a lack of sensitivity and understanding on the part of the filmmakers, not a shortcoming of the lead actor, because Lesenby has one thing you can't fake, which is a certain kind of gravitas. Despite this, there's no attempt to bring it out or to amplify it, which is a huge missed opportunity. Also, Lazenby has a vulnerability that Connery never had. There are scenes in which he looks legitimately terrified, and others in which he convinces us that he's in love with Tracy, particularly in the final scene, which brings us on to another reason Honor Majesty's Secret Service is so distinctive. It's the only Bond film with a female character that isn't a cartoon. The only film in which Bond is so completely frustrated with his bosses that he wants to try to quit. In fact, everything about the film suggests a reboot before the idea of rebooting was even in the air, much less fashionable. Another, albeit small, problem for me is the cheesiness of the process shots in all of the action sequences, particularly the skiing stuff. Again, the editing patterns in these sequences are so stunning, I'm able to disregard the VFX and appreciate what Peter Hunt was trying to do, but man, they are really cheesy. The third problem is the film's too fucking long, the longest Bond film until Casino Royale nearly three decades later. One huge trim should have been made from an hour 6 to an hour 14. No new narrative information is transmitted in this section. It's just Bond screwing chicks and stuff that we learn eventually in other scenes. Also, later on, I'm not sure of the efficacy of Blofeld locking Bond in an engine room with a pretty obvious escape route, but I guess that's what was handy. Obviously, none of these quibbles affects my love for the film, and I'm far from the first person to champion its many merits. The film now regularly scores quite high in the Bond fan polls. I just thought it was about time I memorialized my feelings, given the fact that I have an autographed picture of Lazenby as Bond in my house. Cool. Now, the interesting thing for me, Soderbergh's a fan. reading mm-hmm. Soderbergh's uh, little review there and the Guardian piece is a lot of these, a lot of the strokes are kind of similar, you know. They feel as though um, or both pieces seem to share the idea that Lazenby was not used properly. You know, he he was... They were too focused on what he wasn't than what he could maybe brought the role. And I, I don't, I mean, it's tough to throw blame in any one person at that because you're, this is the first time you've made a change. It's not like yeah. someone hiring Daniel Craig, you've done the changes before. You're not so scared to let a new thing happen, you know? They were, they, they yes. still wanted to find someone who was Sean Connery to do it. And they, the, the film does look like it's a Connery, it, it could be a Connery film, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, could Connery have pulled off, you know, that scene that Soderbergh is talking about? Exactly. No, no, I don't think so. I guess what I mean is the the script. I'm sorry, not the film, because the film's very dark. The the film is is a very different 60s type film to the other Bonds. But uh, the the script seems like it's written for Connery. Like some of those one-liners and stuff, they do fall flat. They really do fall flat for me. So I kind of see where both of these guys are coming from. But yeah, I'm sorry I didn't choose to share more contemporary stuff but i figured as a you know as a cinephile you'd appreciate soderbergh's look on it there yeah that was very interesting and uh, I, I like his perspective and i actually agree with a lot of things that he was saying so we'll, but we'll get into that once we uh, get, get to our scoring our money pennies in, in the end there sure uh, so any any comments then on that jeff or yeah, anything about that uh, no, I mean, I would have to I, – I actually, I agree with what he described there. The thing is, what I was going to say is with with the film itself, it's so it's, – there's a lot of change, right? Whereas you have a totally different Bond. He's not even an actor. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of aspects of this film that are kind of – they're out of their comfort zone. So you have the people that it's not – if it's not Connery, it's not Bond. You have a new guy who wasn't even really an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to like dub over – you know the voice. There's a lot of different sort of. There's a lot of different things going on to make this equation for a film. 
And overall, though, I'd have to say that obviously it was a success if you just look at the box office. But um, I, I, I like him as Bond, but he, he's definitely not my favorite by far. But I do like, how, you know, the different uh, how he emotes compared to Connery. Uh, and I, we, I think we're all in agreement. Say, so, yeah, he could not. Uh, that Connery could not have done those scenes. I mean, he could have. Well, okay, but it, but we, well, it's, well, hard to, it's, it's hard to hard, hard to imagine. Hard to yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's move in then to these scenes and the the story sure. itself. Josh, have you got have you got some strokes on the plot for us? I do. Yes, absolutely. So let's just see what this is all about, shall we? On Her Majesty's Secret Service opens with the most exciting opening sequence in the history of Bondom. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure exactly what radioactive lint has to do with Bond tracking down public enemy number one, Ernst Avril Blofeld, but Desmond Llewellyn can make even lint mesmerizing. But we forgive the lameness immediately as we see Bond's late 60s As- Aston Martin, sorry, I don't know the make and model, sue me, roaring down the coastal artery of the French Riviera. John Barry rocking a Moog with iconic Bondian imagery, a cigarette, a cigarette case, cut to a driver's point of view right out of bullets. Bond is suddenly passed by a red Ford Cougar. Sorry, Mercury Cougar. I've been corrected on this before. Cougar Mercury, whatever. I thought it was a Lancia. Oh, all right. There we go. There's our... A Valencia? Lancia, L-A-N-C-I-A. Lancia, oh, okay. The, The red car, that was a Lancia? I thought it was. I guess not. Maybe I'm wrong. If if you guys are on it, then well, we'll stay with the cougar for now. And if we and if we find out otherwise, I'll I'll just adjust that. No problem. So there's a, so she he gets passed by a red car with a beautiful girl behind the wheel. This seems familiar. Just sub the cougar with this Ferrari and some mousy therapist stereotype, and we have the post credit sequence of Goldeneye. So Bond follows said girl to the seaside, and our neighbors across the hall's fire alarm is now going, uh, smoke detector is now going off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not us, it's them. That's good. Carry on, then. It's about the right time for it, too, usually. It's, yeah. it's like on, right, right, right on cue. They don't have timers, they just have alarms. <laughs> yeah, they just have smoke alarms. Yeah. Um, so Bond is suddenly passed by um, this red Ford Cougar, a beautiful girl behind the wheel. He follows said girl to the seaside, and scoping her out literally, he sees our heroine wistlessly walking into the ocean. Bond goes to save her and resuscitates her on the shore. We get a good look at this mystery suicide girl. Hey, it's Emma Peel from the Avengers. No, the other Avengers. And we see Bond, and it's, oh yeah, it's not Sean Connery. Hey, George Lazenby. But his introduction to this almost femme fatale is interrupted by angry Harry Belafonte and his cronies, who want to make Bond (laughs) to swim with the fishes. Bond's superpowered by former editor, now director Peter Hunt's jump cuts, pulverizes his opponents, but but the girl carjacks his, his Aston Martin and leaves for her cougar, leaving Lazenby to awkwardly break the third wall and we get fourth wall, sorry, and we get more Moog synth with Barry's signature OHMSS theme with no, no lyrics. It's pretty cool. We know this will be a serious one because there's no title song. After the nostalgic opening credits, Bond arrives at a casino noticing the suicide girl's red cougar in the parking lot. Bond does his back rat thing with Lazenby trying his own thing with some puffy frills on his shirt until Mystery Woman appears. Mm. She makes a play and loses everything, but Bond bails her out and follows her to a dining table for a proper introduction. She is the Countess. Her late Count seemingly died in F.W. Murnau fashion with his uh, lover. Teresa de Vigenzo, a.k.a. Tracy, is her name, and she leads Bond the keys to her room. 
Bond heads back and is ambushed by another thug. It's a doozy, but Bond walks off with the caviar and returning to his own room, he finds Tracy soliciting herself. She has a gun and Lazenby tries too hard to be like Bond or Connery for a few gestures that would not go over well these days and sleeps with her. On the morrow, Tracy is gone, leaving him with a big room service bill to pay. Bond hearing she's checked out from the concierge decides to golf it up in, a, in his mod tan sports outfit. But he's accosted in public by, in, by gunpoint and brought to a shady warehouse that soon gives way to a swanky 19th century parlor where we meet Marc-Ange Draco and learn Bond really hates calendars. Draco is the charismatic head of the Union course, a great labor leader slash Corsican mob boss. He's also Tracy's father and knows how Bond likes his martinis. He has a great proposal for Bond, protect his troubled daughter by marrying her, and he will give him a million pounds, gold. Bond doesn't do the monogamy thing, but still tries to squeeze info out of Draco. Where is Blofeld? Draco will drop a few hints if he marries Tracy. The meeting is a stalemate, and Bond returns to England with his lead, but M is having none of it and shuts down Operation Bedlam. Pfft, lame name anyway. Bond dictates his resignation to Moneypenny and heads home to drink before Liz's portrait and parade all the gadgets from the previous Bond films in front of us, except Goldfinger for some reason, which had a lot of gadgets. But the trip down memory lane is interrupted when Bond is called back to M, and M has agreed to his request, but plot twist, good old Moneypenny got a fortnight's leave approved instead. Good old Moneypenny indeed. Yeah, she's really, she's really the... rewarded <laughs> for her health, isn't she? She really, really oh, is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, yeah. Bond heads back to the continent, and Tracy, driving to her father's Portugal estate, lets us see Dame Diana looking badass in her matador gear. But that's not important, because Bond has crashed her family, La Cozy, cozy Nostra Circle, if you catch my drift. Draco pushes Bond on her, but she knows how to handle her mafia daddy and demands Draco give Bond the info he needs. Tracy storms off and Bond tracks her down and reaches out. And Louis Armstrong serenades us through what we never expect to see in a Bond film, a relationship montage. It's like Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw all of a sudden. It's both cheesy and great at the same time. Bond even pets a cat. I could make an irreverent joke here, but I will let our episode on Goldfinger take care of that for us. <laughs> when the love-in ends, we jump cut to bears at a zoo. <laughs> and we're in Bern, Switzerland. Draco stuck between these two love-struck teeny boppers as Bond is dropped off at the edifice wherein a lawyer named Gumbald makes his living. Gumbald, looking like an absolute prig, to be honest, goes for his lunch and Bond shows up all stealthy and we get a great sequence of Bond breaking into Gumbald's office and then his safe. The safe is breached with the help of some gadget brought across the thoroughfare via crane with the assistance of one of Draco's or MI6's men, not quite sure, who has the most intense blonde hair dye ever. It's a pretty cool scene. Bond even reads a Playboy while he's waiting for the safe to crack. Awesome. Turns out there's some dude in the Swiss Alps, a Balthazar de Blochamp, who is trying to get himself made a count. As Bond explains to M afterwards, Blochamp is the French form of Blofeld. And Gumbold has the papers proving this. M, or trying to prove this. M decides to play along and allows Bond to recruit Sir Hilary Bray, a baronet from the London College of Arms that the supposed Blofeld is recruited for confirming his nobility. So we have Bond going all Mission Impossible with the secret identity posing as Bray to rendezvous with Blofeld. We hear happy Christmas music as Bond arrives in the Swiss town by train. Fraulein Bunt, a veteran of the She-Wolves of the SS, is there to meet Bond at the station. Bond is dressed like Basil Rathbone's understudy, complete with the Sherlockian pipe and a doinky hat. And just like Clark Kent, he is indistinguishable from everyone else with those horn-rimmed glasses. Bunt is pretty scary as she leads Bond through the town outskirts to the Count's private helipad. 
I know they're all bundled up on a magical sleigh when we are hearing how Christmas trees are growing overpoweringly on the soundtrack, <laughs> but I don't trust this woman. Something about her. The helicopter ride shows off some elegant cinematography of the Swiss Alps, while Bond feigns airsickness. After some soaring berry music, the helicopter lands on Peace Gloria, the Count's mountaintop allergy clinic. Fräulein Bunt has the kindly-seeming Gunther deposit Bond in his quarters. Lansby, at the producer's gunpoint, checks the living space he's been given for bugs with a thoroughness that would make Connery proud. Mm. But now it's time to cosplay. Bedecked in full Scottish regalia, complete with kilt and sporin and those calves, the faux Sir Hilary Bray is introduced to Blofeld's harem, I mean, patience, in what Fräulein Bunt play, playfully calls the Alpine Room. The clash of Bond in a kilt brain facts about genealogy and the Count's diverse array of patients feels like the worst Outlander fan convention ever. Dinner is served. The girl's eyes glaze over with each genealogical tidbit, but a few are interested in those gold bezants, so much so that one of them, Ruby, defies the Fräulein by writing her room number on Bond's inner thigh with lipstick very accurately yes. too like that's a phenomenally that's, 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 well yeah, written h yeah she was very very well done like it's like I, I bet you in the future she'd be an expert like not looking when she texts you know like she can just do some crazy ass <laughs> texting i think it was more to show what she could do with her hands yeah more i so. think you're right yeah anyway the, so this scene is kind of dated but you know we know that all these girls from um all these girls from across the world have some sort of food allergy and the count is treating them but now it's time to meet the count the friendly German porter Gunther leads Bond below. They cross a gantry in what looks like the back cave to reach the Count's laboratories. In his office, the Count greets Bond and stakes his claim to his title. But no deal, because he's totally Blofeld. Earlobes or no earlobes. Blofeld is, is vehement in his claim and indicates to foe Sir Hillary that it's going to be all work and no play for Hilly at his Gloria. Blofeld sends him back to his rooms, but good spy that he is, Bond MacGyvers his way out of his quarters and steals away to the room indicated by the red rouge applied to his inner thigh earlier. <laughs> Covered only by a bedsheet is Ruby Bartlett, a cute girl from Lancashire with spectacles that as a Bond girl is less of the style of Ursula Andress and Dr. No and more in the style of Daphne from Frasier. She finds Hillary a surprise <laughs> beneath the blankets, but post-coitus undergoes with the rest of the patients Blofeld's creepy 60s era villain hypnotic voice emanating through her quarters. Mm. Bond li listens carefully to Blofeld's hypnotherapy. He bows out and finds one of the other girls wishing to learn more about genealogy. She also watches MacGyver, apparently. <laughs> Meanwhile, our MI6 slash Draco agent with the bright blonde hair dye job is trying to figure out how to get to Blofeld's veritable eagle's nest atop Peace Gloria. But the Count's cronies in their bland orangeness and Olympic ring emblazoned attire won't let him pass the restaurant on one of the low lower peaks. The cable car doors slam in his face, and he's left to worry about the dude who is living in the 70s porno right now. The porno protagonist is indeed at it again, setting up his one-night stands on the curling court of all places. But alas, Blofeld is reminding him of his duty and probably, deliberately, arrests Captain Peroxide in front of him. Bond heads back to his quarters and again with the zen of Richard Dean Anderson enters the room of another patient, only to find Fraulein Bunt under the sheets. Shudder. Unless you know you're cool with that. I don't know. <laughs> Bond doesn't either because he's bludgeoned from behind. He wakes up in a daze, staring at Blofeld's Christmas tree, and and in, it is indeed the Spectre Mastermind who is not afraid to reveal himself to the man he knows as 007. Blofeld goes on a villainous rant about extorting the world's economy by using his angels of death to destroy crops and livestock all across the world, but now he has to place Bond in a place where hopefully he will either freeze to death or be someplace where they can torture him later. I was going to beef about another Bond villain leaving Bond in a trap, but it seems 
interrogation might have been in his future. So, you know what, Mr. Soderbergh? I think that was actually a good idea. I understand why they did that part of the movie, and I think it works fine. So there. It definitely wasn't in Captain Peroxide's future, however, but it, but, this, but it was in his recent past. Blofeld directs Bond to, hanging corp, to the hanging corpse of the only friend he has on the mountain. So Blofeld locks Bond up in the gear room of P's glorious cable car. With some awesome stunt work, Bond surmounts the gears and cogs and the cable cars to sneak back into the clinic, a move that allows him, of course, to discern Blofeld's master plan. Use the girls through radio and hypnotize and hypnotize to sabotage essential grains and livestocks. But for what purpose? The girls are loaded onto the cable car with Fraulein Bunt as her scary chaperone, whilst Bond, taking out the desk clerk, makes his way into the ski room and makes his escape. But Spectre is on the alert. Searchlights fly over the mountainside, and in this pale of night, Bond is seen beginning his descent down the mountainside. A spectacular ski chase ensues as Der Englander weaves his way through hills, precipices, and trees whilst dodging the bullets of a pursuing Blofeld and his men. A few close calls along the precipice capped with a baddie going over the side with a delicious Willem scream and a gratuitous glimpse of, of hitting the foot of the mountain below. Another, maddie is soon, another baddie is soon dispatched and Bond evades Blofeld's search team on one ski, zipping down to the town below. John Barry continues to be awesome and the band plays on. Accessing some secret road we are not aware of, Blofeld's men arrive very quickly in a black sedan to pick up Fraulein Bunt, because despite how all the girls wish her a Merry Christmas as her bus pulls away, she's still a scary-ass witch. <laughs> the she-wolf spots Bond within seconds. Bond runs into a bell store? No, he's not buying more minutes so he can have FaceTime with Tracy, because that's the future, duh. I mean, there's little literal bells everywhere, and it's clanging, and it's really, really loud, and Peter Hunt is a sadist. Bond is still on the run, probably fighting tinnitus, but at least he adopts some Winter's coat, and now he's totally in disguise. They will never find him. Nah, they're on his trail, and Bond actually looks scared moving through the crowd, and that Christmas tree song is playing, and Bond is just absolutely terrified. Of the song? And we are on the edges of his seat. Our seats, I should say. <laughs> Sometimes you read things too fast off the page. Um, uh, moving forward. Uh, so Bond finally outdistanced them with the convenient money from the coat he stole. Gets into a nice show. Because where else are you going to go? Bond looks pretty miserable sitting there trying to keep warm in his jacket and remaining conspicuous to the evil forces hounding him through the crowd. But he looks up for a brief moment when he sees a familiar pair of legs. They are nice legs. They belong to Tracy. To say Bond is delighted to see her is an understatement, but as a mafioso daughter, she judges the situation perfectly and helps Bond escape via that red cougar, Mercury. Bond needs to get to a phone to call M, but before he can decide, but before he can, he decides if he wants to make a collect call or not, a barrage of bullets shatters the phone booth, and Bond and Tracy are soon on the run, pursued by Bunt's sedan, now at full machine gun blast. They crash a car rally in their getaway. It turns out that a star car rally is really a great way to avoid troublesome Spectre agent-laden sedans. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty awesome sequence of vehicular stunts, and Tracy looks too excited behind the wheel. <laughs> Bond kind of loves it, and her. Especially the part when Bond's sedan is capsized and explodes as its occupants bail for the cold ice. It's a long road ahead, and the snow is coming down hard. Luckily, some person is completely deaf and blind, availing them the opportunity of hiding out the car and the two lovers in their big barn. So here it comes, the other scene no one expected to ever see in a James Bond film. James Bond asks Tracy to marry him, and she agrees to marry her winter sportsman. Ah, uh, the horses ship it, we ship it, everybody but Ian Fleming ships it. But after some sold shipping, Blofeld arrives at the barn, but Bond and Tracy have fled the coop. Blofeld and his men track them down on the slopes. One poor bastard reenacts that scene in Fargo, and Blofeld causes an avalanche to bury Bond and Tracy. Bond can't be found in the aftermath, so pretty much dead, eh, Ernst? 
He spots Tracy's form half buried in the snow, though, and his men pull the future Mrs. Bond from the wreckage. Bond, though? There's no body, so he must be dead. Nope. Bond is soon back in London, shocked to hear the UN will cow to Blofeld's demands. This is definitely not the post-9-11 age where we don't we, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And that, and that Tracy is going to be thrown under the bus. And all Blofeld wants? Immunity and recognition of his title. He just wants to be count, damn it. Just because he's masterminded schemes against both superpowers and has sort of the world with two nuclear weapons and stealing spaceships shouldn't get in the way for him to become count to Blochamp. I mean, come on. No earlobes. Feck this shit, says 007, and calls his very own Vito Corleone. Plans are made. Cut to P's Gloria, and Tracy doesn't look too much in peril. She's turned the pants off Blofeld like the queen she is. Unlike Blofeld, she actually is a countess. Here we get an intellectual scene with two thespians, Savalis' Blofeld and, well, Dame Diana going all masterpiece theater. But hark, the Valkyries are about to arrive. It's funny that Blofeld and Tracy are waxing poetic on Helen of Troy because a Trojan horse just got into Swiss airspace. <laughs> Draco's termed the kind Swiss air traffic control officer that his fleet of helicopters are not only carrying blood plasma, but also distinguished members of, this, of the world press. Before you can say fake news, Tracy hears her mafia daddy on the comm and prepares herself. Cue Monty Norman's James Bond theme as P's Gloria is assaulted, and all sides by Draco's helicopter squad. Bond, among the fray, sliding on his belly like a toddler learning how to skate, pumping those orange meanies with lead. There's explosion and action. Blofeld flees the salvo of bullets, and Tracy has to fight mano a mano against Gunther. He's not so kind after all. She holds her own because c- she's freaking Emma Peel and manages to induce Gunther to some severe species of acupuncture by the time Bond and Daddy Dearest arrives. Bond goes below and wastes a few mad scientists and locates a switch in Blofeld's study that reveals the map showing the location of each girl. He takes his pictures with his cool mini-camera, but Blofeld is doubled back and takes aim and misses him. Bond riddles the upper story of the lab with a machine gun fire, and Walther in hand pursues Blofeld. Draco and his men set explosives charges to the facility. Tracy demands they wait for Bond, but Draco shows his compassion with the right to his daughter's jaw. Yeah. Bond is making his way after Blofeld climbing to the exit, where Blofeld has disappeared. Cut to the timer on the explosive stopping. Blofeld jumps out. The timer has stopped. Bond jumps out. The timer has stopped. Boom. Finally. Blofeld and Bond practically roll down the mountainside, but Blofeld manages to stumble across a bobsled run. Slash, yes, I do recall the Shakovian bobsled run making his appearance when Bond is first en route to Piz Gloria. So Bond is pursuing Blofeld by bobsled. It's different and cool. Turns out Blofeld is not the best at throwing grenades, though, almost killing himself in the process. <laughs> but is able to get out his jam of his jam by lobbing it directly towards Bond on the track. Bond bails, rolling down the mountainside again to grab onto the back of Blofeld's sled, and a fight ensues with Bond getting his head walloped against the icy wall of the bobsled run. But they soon reverse positions, and Blofeld is on top. Um, but it's not a good thing, because he's too busy focusing on Bond below him, that he doesn't see the rogue tree branch sticking out. Ouch. I need to leave after seeing that. It's all good, though, because Bond reaches the bottom of the track, and there's a big, fluffy St. Bernard coming to his rescue. I guess Blofeld is dead? Bond wonders aloud. And here we get our happy ending. Bond visits the jewelry shop with the ring we saw in the montage. Chekhov is definitely getting his dues. And we're back in Portugal and people are happy and there's joy and singing. But if anything, learning how Christmas trees are grown and happy, shiny people are about, we know something really bad is about to happen. But who cares? Because, ah, Tracy looks beautiful. Draco and Em are discussing operations. Q is a proud uncle. Ah, and just as they drive off on their flower-bedecked Aston Martin, Bond throws Moneypenny his hat one last time. I'm not crying. You're crying. 
And then we're all really, really, really crying because we end with the Aston Martin on the side of the cliff road, a flash of Blofeld and a neck brace, coldly ordering his malevolent housefrau to riddle the money honeymooning couple with bullets. They don't even hit Bond. Only one bullet penetrates the windshield, ending right between Tracy's eyes. It's really, really sad, guys. They had all the time in the world, you know. But don't worry, because nobody will care about this movie when Sean Connery returns and for some unknown reason dumps a completely different Blofeld in a mud bath. I might be bitter. Maybe a bit. Nice work. Good work. Thank you. Yeah, well, that's it, guys. That's the strokes of the plot of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And now it's up to us to get into it. Any thoughts? The one thing I was going to say about this Bond is that, especially for when it came out, you know, it's uh, you know, it's a revolutionary time. It's a revolutionary film, um, you know, and just even the way um, he's dressed and, and the things that happened, it's very much different than the Connery. So that's what I liked about this movie is that it, it really was kind of going forward in in with film and stuff and uh and I, I thought it was quite quite a success obviously the box office would would, uh, would agree with that um different things i had a little, some little like tidbits here i thought it was funny it's like bond mod or mod as a ministry of defense right mm. <laughs> because you know his his uh his outfits which I thought he looked at one point. He looked like he was wearing an outfit from the Thunderbirds. Oh, the uh, uh, tan know, golf. The tan golf. Know? I was like, oh Get man, <laughs> that's what I thought. I was like, is he going to go into a, a rocket ship that's uh, being held by string? Because that's what I felt. <laughs> um, you know, different things like that. Um, I, I I really liked the feel of the hotel. Like at first, I thought we were back in North Africa, and we were going to run into like uh, he's going to walk into a room, and I was going to see like this destroyed bust of uh of nelson you know Man, the hotel was the hotel was really really nice but if i could just pick up on something you oh, said absolutely uh, about this being a different bond it is from the very beginning it is a right. different feel but yep. the only thing i don't think makes it uh, i think the script is still lacking here in this film because i, I think a lot of it was written with connery type performance Correct. in mind but the style peter hunt's style and the, the visuals are very different very arresting yes now you guys you guys are are probably more more hit up on this than i am but there's there's like a i, I don't know if this is the right word okay but there's a fatalism to to the way this film particularly the beginning of it so forget the plot for a minute like the yep. style of this is it's far more fatalistic than the other bond films that we've seen so far and I feel like the darkness and this beginning—it's setting a completely different stylistic tone. And I don't—I don't, I don't yeah. know—I don't know if that's indicative of films of the time, like like uh, *The Graduate*, *Midnight Cowboy*. I, I mean, what, is there something in this being a late '60s film that they saw yeah, as an yeah, opportunity? I would, yes, I would agree with that. And, and that was a good—I like how you you mentioned uh, *Midnight Cowboy*. Uh, I was so I no, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying there. Uh, if, for example, and I think it. The, the dark aspect is also like well, think about it the, one of the first things we see is bond trying to rescue a girl trying to commit suicide in the ocean i mean that's a you know it's pretty that's pretty different um and i like how he mentioned scoping out literally that was good that was a good one i just want to give you some points for that one well it's, um, it's funny about the scope because 
I think that that that's one of the most impressive shots. I really yes. really like that that shot of of Lazenby. You know, because what we're getting with this being a brand new James Bond, right? Like we're seeing it in so many different ways with the cigarette close up in the mouth, and yeah. before we get a full long shot of of Lazenby, we just see in little parts like a puzzle almost we got to put together. But I love that scoping first person camera work. It's cool. Absolutely. Yeah, that was really well yeah. done. Just like the, just like the uh, the. Uh, the 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 jump from the from like the long shot to the zoom in that was really well done yeah and you see see when when we're still in the scope but it stretches right it goes more horizontal what 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 yeah. exactly is the camera doing there or it's sorry like depth, it's almost like depth of field almost in, yeah it's it, cool it's sort of like depth of field in a way um, almost similar to almost something like that like w- Wells would do or something yeah I thought it was all really good um, I I found the editing tricky though to understand like yes. I, I'm trying to think of obviously it's sped up. And that's deliberate. It is. Yeah. And that's the one thing. Uh, that's the that was my my only kind of thing with this film is that everything else it, it, it was edited really well, but the sped up and the I call them the jump the jump cut kicks mm-hmm. and the, and sort of like the Bruce Lee aspect of it really really annoyed me because I felt like at some points I'm watching like a Golden Harvest like ch- a chop sake film, yeah. <laughs> um, you know. But everything else fit well. But yeah, it was the the speeding up. I mean, obviously, it was a trick of the trade of the time, and but yeah, that that really drove me nuts. Yeah, they kind of started <laughs> using it. I mean, we haven't done the film yet, but Thunderball to me was the first film I really noticed in the Bond series where they started doing that speeded up action stuff. I mean, if you recall, Scott, there's a sequence in Thunderball where they use a speed up action, and it's like almost ridiculous to an extent. Is that the boat at the end? Yeah, the oh, yeah the yeah, yeah like the, the Millennium Falcon. Falcon. Yeah. And to be honest, I think the best choreographed fight that actually used the speeding up, you know, and slowing down was the one with the uh, in the bedroom where he puts the guy through like the wall mm-hmm. and he just passes out. I think the fight with Tracy and Gunther is also a good that, one too. Oh no, that was a good one too. I just felt that they didn't. Well, I think basically what it was is they didn't use the speed up and slow down as much. Yeah, you know, it was more choreographed fights. So it wasn't just sort of like the camera work doing that. Yeah, that that hotel fight was pretty good, but you see, see the guy, the guy's lying back, right, and he, he then comes, his head goes up and it goes back down again. Yeah. The, the only yeah. thing we're missing there is like the wreath of Tweety birds, you know. Right. That's what I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. I was debating what color the birds would be. Yeah. That's my thing. <laughs> Purple to match the the wallpaper in that incredible yeah. casino. Yeah. So I was gonna go with a mix of yellow and blue, but that's fine. Yeah, the that, purple and that the is casino a, was some- was yeah, really good. It made it look like that place was a really old place, eh? Like, <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. It it did though. It did speak of artifice, even though I really liked it. Yeah. Anyway, and I liked Barry's score in that too. Um, yeah, the uh, lounge like, music. The lounge yeah, music that, that, that exactly. he created himself for it. Another thing that I liked was for the credits and how it starts with uh, the Bond theme is that I like how it's 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 sort of really sort of um, taking that late sixties sound which and if the mood with, with, exactly with late 60s music in almost all genres was very heavy like with Hammond organ b3 organ moog synthesizers and so you could really hear with it starting off with that and i, I liked how it did that um and i, I did enjoy the the credits that i was saying you know as was, was commenting as i was watching kind of stream of consciousness i was saying martini anyone that i was like is this a drunk flashback or is this a stylish rehash Mm-hmm. I didn't actually come and figure out which which it was. Oh, like the um, the the, uh, the martini glass and the opening yeah, credits. Yeah, showing the other thing. Yeah, that, that was so... a weird way to project the right? um, uh, p- the previous Bond films That's, from before. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. 
So what do you think, Scott? Was it a drunk flashback or was it a stylist rehash of the previous film? Stylist, stylist rehash. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of agree. I think so. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something about... Can we, can we talk a few minutes uh, or maybe just one moment if you don't have a lot to feel about it? Lazenby breaking the fourth wall here. Uh, how much of it is him having fun and how much of it is a direction? I mean, there's, there's oh, an obvious... Yeah. It's obvious, you know, it's deliberate, but yeah. I think he's having fun here. I think he's enjoying himself. I think so, too. I, I, to be honest, I, I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I thought the quip was okay, but at the same time, I think it undercut the gravitas of that yes, scene. Yes, it did. It did, but that's the problem. When you do that, you have, like, that's the thing. Whenever you break the fourth wall, that's a possibility of it happening. And I think it I think it did sort of uh, negate the sort of the severity of the situation, but I did enjoy it. If what, I take off, you know... If I separate myself from my my personal love for the film and look at it objectively, I personally find the objectively personally <laughs> as a contradiction. I objectively what I don't appreciate I, I not appreciate, but what I don't think works is that the the juxtaposition of the of the gritty movie that Peter Hunt was trying to make and then the idea of making another Bond film the Broccoli's were trying to make. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. those quips, I think, don't work in the movie that Peter Hunt was trying to make. And you mentioned already, Scott, that how, how Lazenby's lines kind of, the, the quips that he has fall flat. But his, rather, his regular dialogue and everything else is fine. But whenever he has like a Connery-like quip, they just don't work at all. Some of them certainly don't. I, I did mark a place where I thought that they worked perfectly. But just getting back to that one at the beginning, this never happened to the other fella. How much of that do you think was written in there by Maybaum for, or even, or maybe just ad-libbed? I mean, I'm not sure uh, if it was something, you know, something structured into the, the scene. How much of that would have settled the audience and maybe given them something, even though it was breaking the fourth wall, that allowed them to settle and relax. That's true. That's, that's, that's true. So outside yeah. of the film story, yeah. it, it was probably a very good decision to, to do. Exactly. I think because like well, the way we were describing it before is that, you know, this is a different film. This is a different Bond. This is a different time. And we all know, yes, Connery is not Bond this time. This is a new guy. No one knows who he is. Mm. So it was, there were kind of, I think they were almost like gambling on it uh, in a sense like, you know, maybe if he said, maybe this will put the audience at ease. Maybe it'll give them a chuckle, and then they'll be more at ease with to see what else happens. It's like, okay, maybe it's almost like you know, um, pushing the typewriter to start a new line. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really that's a that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, coming back to some, or going forward to some of these lines that we were kind of dancing around here. I like some of the stuff that the conversation in the casino and what you're right. saying, Josh, about about Lazenby's own, just kind of the script written naturally for him instead of the ones they're trying to pigeonhole in to herald what, what was, you know, be, before him. Like, he, yeah. he, de- he delivers them well. He says, and I really like the delivery of the line when he's talking to Tracy, uh, please stay alive at least for tonight. Like, that felt quite genuine. <laughs> you know? It did, yeah. I felt him and Rick had good chemistry, actually, uh, despite good. the fact that, they, that on set they had issues, but... Oh. I, I, th- I, I think she holds him up, to be perfectly honest. That's how I feel. But we'll uh, we'll, we'll get there. Well, we'll... I'm not saying that uh, you know, like 
Lazenby is the equal to Rig, but I'm just I'm just saying is that they had good chemistry in, in that respect. Well, like I, to be honest, I guess she technically would hold him up if you think because she's already ha- she has quite a quite a resume for film mm-hmm. at that time, whereas he did a chocolate commercial. What, what was yeah, exactly. So there you go. <laughs> well, you she will. didn't do a lot of films, but she was no, on the she, Ava- was, uh, she was on the Avengers, and she did, but yeah, she, she did a lot of Shakespeare, Shakespeare on the exactly, stage. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, filters. Use, I just mentioned here uh, under my atmosphere box that there's a lot of filters used in the external and internal interior settings, hey, of the opening scenes. Yeah, yes. the, like especially like on the beach during dur- yeah. during the fight yeah. with the quote unquote angry Harry, Harry Belafonte. Uh huh. <laughs> angry Harry. Yeah. I, I don't. It's just a, a notice. Like it, it seemed quite obvious and contrasting to the earlier feel of Bond. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was very different. Although, I mean, I think there's some good fights in the past, you know, that were pretty rousing too. Um, but in terms of how they were filmed, definitely different from what we from what we can see. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like they're trying to master that, speeding up the the yeah. the camera like the uh, film speed uh to make it work be- better than it did uh in their previous attempt which was in thunderball because if you notice like you, know, you only live twice there wasn't really any um camera work uh or at any like that whatsoever there was no post-production to make things go faster than they, nor- than they normally would to, to give the illusion of speed and strength i guess is what they were trying to do so what i think about that is that in the late 60s, so like, you know, 68, 69, 70, and 71, that's when the martial art films are really coming out, like, you know, Bruce Lee and, and unfortunately, I can't remember the other guys at, at that same time. And, I mean, Jackie Chan was coming up as well. But that was how they filmed. That's how they, you know, that was a chief sort of uh, um, form of how they did those. So I thought, I just thought maybe that it, this was almost in a way it was, it looked into those films and I said, let's do action like how it's how it's being made for this type of film. Let's try a different type of editing and filming for for action scenes. Uh, and I don't think it necessarily worked well, but it was interesting that they decided to try that. That's what I say, anyways. Hmm. I like the late '60s uh, films, uh, the, the photography. Oh. I'm not talking about the speeding up, of, of speeding up or anything, but the photography, though. Oh, yeah. um, like you mentioned, the filters. I mean, that was really interesting, mm-hmm. especially on the on the beach and whatnot. It gave a kind of sort of like this gloomy kind of foggy feel to everything and is almost murky where you're not sure exactly what's, what's, what's going to come out of this, right? right? And then you go to the after the end, after the opening credits, the, those filters are kind of gone and you're back to a more kind of – the colors are, are more focused and, and diverse as opposed to being, you know, very, I guess, blurred as they were in the opening sequence. Who worked as editor on this film? Oh, have you That's got that question. name? Because obviously Hunt would have had a hand in it. He is an editor, but he was—he he certainly oh, would have. Uh, he, I think he it would said have... it was John Glenn. No, John Glenn was second unit director. Second oh. unit director, yeah. Oh. The editor. I don't imagine he edited this as well, did he? I mean, I can just bring it up here on IMDb. I just thought maybe one of you guys oh. knew. Off the top of my head, I don't. Okay, but... we'll find out. That's fine. I'll answer my own question for us in a moment. Yeah. So moving on then, uh, we've got this transition where Bond goes in to meet the patriarch, right? Yeah. And I quite like that. I like the lines. This is a place where I do like the lines that he delivers. When he's in the car, 
being brought to see Draco, and he's got the knife you know, kind of in his side. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, great! Like it's almost kind of, he was almost kind of like just being very cavalier, you know? Like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> You know well, I tell you what, guys, and, and maybe it's a number thing. Maybe this was would have happened anyway occasionally, or maybe this would have happened anyway if you put enough variables together, you know, like how many, what is it, the thing about monkeys in a room, right? You put enough monkeys in a room with typewriters, they're going to eventually come around to it. But I felt that the lines he delivered in the car were the perfect mix of Connery and Moore. I really, yeah. I, I really felt that. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like it's a foreshadowing of Moore in, in a way. Kind of, yeah. Because we, we get all the, that. All the more is a bit more ridiculous with it. Yes. Or not ridiculous, more overt with it, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Whereas it had a kind of a devil, it kind of gave Lazenby a devil may care kind of thing. And, and that was clearly their, their idea. That was the way they wanted to make, I guess, Lazenby be badass to the audience, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, edited. The film was edited by your friend. John Glenn. It says John Glenn. It does say John Glenn, yeah. Yeah, so he was second year director and he edited the film. Hmm, cool. So, so so again, it's like Peter, it's like Peter Hunt reborn, kind of well all over again, because you have him later on doing being a, here being an editor, and then later on down the road becoming a director. So how about Draco? He is an interesting father figure. Let's say it that way. I thought I'd say, oh look, it's Gomez from the Adams family. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you could equally have said that it's uh, what's his face from From Russia with Love. Uh, Kieran Bay, yeah, Kieran Bay, Sim- similar type of uh, character. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably a little, a little, a little softer, I guess, in his own way. But um, I actually, I liked his character. Yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed his character. The actor had charisma when when he was, was in when he yeah. was when he was in the scenes yeah. and uh, and the scenes that he was in. I, th- I think he almost he outclassed Lazenby, to be I, honest. I would actually agree with that. I was going to say he really did command his performances when he was when he was on screen. Whoever he was with, he was usually in the forefront. I would say. Yeah, and his scenes with Rig were really good too. Yeah, they were. I, I kind of I, I I I believe their father daughter yeah, re- relationship quite well. I think some of the the dialogue written for him was really poor though like i don't think i don't think just like i don't think sean bean needed to be a sex pest to be a good villain i don't think that he needs to be like an abusive father to be effective in his role he can still be a crime boss he can still be helpful like you know he he can still do those things but some of the lines like what she needs is a man to make love to her over and over until she learns to love him. A man who dominates her. And then when he punches his daughter later in the film, yeah. the, he says, uh, uh, what is it? Spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, like, yeah. I, I get the idea, you know, be a tough yeah. parent, but you know, he, he, he knocks her out, man. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I think I think it's almost like the writer's trying to insinuate to her that she's kind of a pain in the ass in her own way, right? Like she's she's like a, a likable pain in the ass, and and there's probably almost like a joke to that. But in modern day sense, it just doesn't work to me. But see, even in modern day sense, like I don't remember the Connery films going here. I mean, the Connery films were aggressive, and yes, he slapped women and whatnot. Yes. But you didn't see too many dads beating up on their daughters. Yeah, that's a no. It's, it is. It is definitely a really. It, it's an. Awesome but that was in the book too, right? So that, that's something Maybe that carried over from Fleming. Well, okay, that doesn't justify it being no. in the book. <laughs> no, it does not. It, it is. It is odd because he's such a. You know, he said he has a lot of, you know, charisma and and culture and you know wealth, and then he just. You know, he gives her a right cross. Like, okay, it's a bit odd. Yeah, I thought so as well. But yeah, no, it, it was in a way, odd. to me, it kind of, it kind of, 
re- revealed uh, kind of like the, the 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 darkness underneath his character. Well, yeah, the guy is a mob boss. He kills people. He's not a good guy. And we and we and I think the movie in a way kind of makes That's, us forget this for a bit. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? Because he's Bond's prospective father-in-law. So we have to like this guy kind of, don't we? So, or, yes. or, 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 or do we? And yeah. the question is, do they play up the ambiguity well or or do they go over to one side only, you know? Well, I, I guess at that point you're like, is it really that cozy Nostra? I don't know. <laughs> but, but the other fact is, is that you forget. Like you're like, he's a father. But like this shows you just how – uh, he's got like a one-track mind. Like he's like he needs to do this, and he's like, if I have to knock out my daughter, uh, like I'll do it. Which is it shows the severity of the situation, but it's it's quite yeah, it's it was quite jarring, pun intended. <laughs> I feel like it is pretty weakly developed, and I'm not saying that this is a script problem. I no. think, and Josh, when we looked at the books, I had a problem with this relationship in the books, which is one of the reasons why I didn't rate it quite as highly as you did, because mm-hmm. I, I think that this is a hangover from the Fleming relationship on on the page. I just don't think there's a great way to represent this. What the yeah. film tries to do is exactly what you're saying. They try to make you feel like this guy is still, we, he's still kind of good because he's going to be James Bond's father-in-law, and we kind of have to like him. And the, the, the quote that they use in the story... Um, where Bond says this almost like he's talking to us or to a court of law. He says the legitimate business fronts uh, are somewhat more extensive. Like that, that, that's the story allowing us to like the bad guy in order to say, okay, well, you're actually really good. You're actually pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And what was the story between Marc Ange and Olymp? What, what her name is? Olin, I think her name was like, is, is that his mistress or like, who is she? I don't know, but she's good friends with his daughter. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if she's maybe she she might have been like a, I don't know a former maid or something or like a almost like an attendant to her or something. Maybe, maybe like in uh, from Russia with Love it, it to take a page a second, out of that. It could be a second wife, you know. Could be a second wife, or could be like in from Russia with Love, uh, how Karen Bay just picked a girl out of the wild and kept her under his table for a few years, chained to the leg. Oh yeah. Like, that's yeah. the level of source material we're dealing with, and I'm not going to shy around it. It's, it's kind of repulsive. I'm not just saying from, from, a, from a modern, you know, a uh, modern view yeah, of absolutely. equality. I mean, some of the stuff is just balls out crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I think the actor was good. I think he was charismatic, but I think that, it's, as you said, there's thin, there's very, very, like, thin foundations here holding, holding, holding them up in the film. And, we, and I think we, it's, it's very good to point that out. Yeah, I just I don't mind Bond being a womanizer. You know, he's a bachelor at the end of the no, day. I, I I don't I don't you know we don't have to like that about him. That that's a debatable point. But I don't think there's yeah. any place for beating up on women and shit like no, that. No, well, definitely I mean, not. It, but the thing is, like, yeah, but like beating your daughter, like, really, you don't think they could have? He could have just like grabbed her and like tried or many to, like, of yeah, exactly. Like, that's <laughs> enough. Or, yeah, to yeah. Like, <laughs> he could have had out. any one of his men drag her away. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's right. Could, like, yeah, do the, do the double pound to his chest, and then they pull her away. <laughs> You know, yeah. but maybe maybe that would have maybe that would have undermined her own strength. I don't know. I, mean, how, I suppose. How yeah, do you want to? How do you want to do it? Yeah, like they, they didn't want to have her dragged away like a damsel. Um, you know what I mean? Like just just screaming for James, right? They wanted to give her a bit of strength. So the only way they could do that is have her be just totally flatlined what in if, one punch. What if she slapped him and then he wound up but didn't punch her, and then the guys pull her away? That would have. Mm. I see. I would have been okay with that. <laughs> but that would kind of create a whole new tension to something that's there. And it would, I, would, I think in in the I end, guess. it would have associated this guy being more evil than he actually is. But the screenplay doesn't have room to develop uh, his character. Okay. So I think for the for this for his part in the film, 
and in the book as well, I think Draco, despite, as I said, the charisma of the actor yeah. and kind of how we, because of the charisma of the actor, on the on the level, on, on like, I guess on, on a conscious level, we're kind of liking him. But subconsciously, we're also realizing that he's not developed en- uh, enough for this story, in my opinion. Yeah, I and mean, that's Fleming's fault. I'm going right back to the book. Yeah, right to the source, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let's move ahead then, guys, to the College of Arms when Bond gets the okay from M to pursue this, uh, well, it, it's kind of an offshoot of uh, Operation Bedlam. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really cool uh, part of the storyline. I like the idea of Bond going in disguise and you know, yeah, and the idea that, that Blofeld's ambition is to become a count Mm-hmm. Um, more so than anything, so he gets recognition. It kind of shows his. It, it kind of shows him as a much more deeper villain than I think. Um, than you know that, he, despite being you know the guy that they basically based Doctor Evil off of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree. Uh, I, I, I got some questions about uh, Baker though. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, what, what what do you think of him? Well, Baker, I think, is a good actor. Uh, and in the scene that he went in, he was fine. But there's an interesting fact about Baker is that he was Peter Hunt's next door neighbor. And that's why he got the role. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is that Lazenby actually in the film acted out like he actually imitated to the best of the ability Hillary Bray's voice. That's right. And didn't Baker dub a lot of stuff for him? Well, what happened is that afterwards they just ADR'd Lazenby that's... completely with Baker. Yeah, okay. When I, when I spoke to Granny earlier in the week, uh, we were talking about accents and things like that. And you'll hear when I play the interview for us all. But I said then that I wasn't quite sure. And hopefully you had some information on the ADR. And it turns out that you did. Yeah, that's basically, yeah, they, they dubbed him over completely. Even I think it's too bad because I think Lazenby trying to put on some kind of accent, I think that would have been, I think, more intriguing, in my opinion, than having him dubbed over. Mm-hmm. That's that's also similar to like what they did with those um, martial art movies. They just did all the all the voices were always edited after, right? Obviously because of language. This is how badly Eon Productions treated Lazenby. They basically treated him like all yeah. the past Bond girls yeah. in in, 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 the, in the films and dubbed her over with the same yeah. actress. Yeah, that's kind of a low, low blow. Every Bond girl, uh, like low blow from, 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 yeah, yeah, from Doctor No, like even Ursula Andress, even like Claudine Ogier in um, in Thunderball. The girls in uh, You Only Live Twice, they're all dubbed over by the same actress. Didn't wow. she recently die? I think well. she, uh, I don't think so. Are you confused now with uh, Eunice Gason? Yes, I am. I am. Yeah. But she was dubbed over too. She dubbed Ursula Andress. No, she she was the the actress who dubbed Ursula Andress in Dr. No. Oh, I see. Okay, so it wasn't the same ones who, who, who did the other ones then. I'm not sure about the other ones, but I do know that she was... She she did the dubbing for uh, Ursula Andress, yeah. Okay, so Sylvia Trench and uh, and Honey Ryder are the same person. Okay, cool. Yeah, and we're gonna fact check that one in case anyone's screaming at their uh, radios or you know speakers right now. This or headphones or yeah, their we'll, radio. Yeah, we'll person, fact check person that. they're sitting next to on the subway. Yeah, we will <laughs> fact check that because I don't want to be wrong. No, never, never. No, it's. I mean, it's, it has happened four times in my life, but I, you know, I don't. I don't want a fifth. Yeah, fair, fair, fair enough. I, I, I agree with that. All right, so yeah, we got George Baker. We've got the Sir Hillary Bray stuff, and that leads us on into the big scene or big setting, sorry, of the Swiss Alps. I've just recently returned from the Swiss Alps, where I 
had all but booked my ticket to the Schulthorn and Piz Gloria, but I changed the last minute, deciding instead to uh, to rent a car and go less the distance to visit some Sherlock Holmes sites. Now, whether that was a good decision or not, it turned out to be a cheaper and more time-effective decision. <laughs> more financially sound decision. So it was a better uh, yes. decision in the end. Well, yeah, I guess so. Um, and Christmas was coming, so, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And I did get, of course, I mean, I did get there to the uh, to the foot of Murren and all of the rest of it, but I, uh, I didn't go up the cable car. So I can't say, like so many others who have made the trip, uh, exactly what it's like up there, but yeah, I mean, I had my lunch booked and everything at the the rotating restaurant. Yeah. So at the bottom, how many uh, grenade pins and <laughs> and burned out bobsleds did you see? That's just, what I wanted to ask. I just saw I just saw one actually. Any fricasseed pussycats? Uh, no, no. A couple of St. Bernards that looked lost. Oh, yeah. See, so is that like the very first Neo Citron commercial then? <laughs> That's what I, <laughs> I think it was, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. We're showing our age there, let me tell you. See, the other thing is I noticed, just, I'm just, you know, I was thinking for, you know, um, continuity and realism is the St. Bernard did not have drool icicles, and that really bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> it was obviously just let out of that hotel room. Could you, yeah. could, you imagine, could you imagine a rabid St. Bernard in the Alps? My God, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I, ha- I have read Cujo. And right? yeah. I know what I know what that's like in the summer. So <laughs> in, in the Alps, I don't know how far he would get. It'd be a bit, a bit like Jack Nicholson in uh, The Shining, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a very different film as well. Right. So we get two Bond um, mm-hmm. now arriving in, in the town by train, mm-hmm. and like I said, he's dressed like Basil Rathbone's yeah, understudy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I I personally love that line when, when I wrote it. It felt awesome, and it still feels awesome. Well, you just enjoy it, pal. Did you call him Basil Rathbond? Rath Rathbond. No, I didn't call him that, but you just did, and that's yeah, kind of, and that's pretty cool. There you go, that's Basil Rathbond. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the 007 percent solution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lazenby, the 007 percent solution. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, actually. Ba- you know what? There, there's your there's your story. Basil Rathbond and the 007 percent solution. <laughs> I, AKA I, I, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think Alan Moore should do a graphic novel about that. Ah. <laughs> Tell your sister she's wasting her time with her own creations. That she <laughs> she should be putting pen to mine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, hours, hours. Let's be collectively fair. Yeah, we we need that Bond Sherlock Holmes mashup definitely. This is reminding me of like Batman versus Dracula comics. Just you know, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes <laughs> did fight Dracula. Well, speaking of Dracula and scary things, um, what did you think of um, Il Steppitz, uh, Fraulein Bunt? Was she Rosa Klebb part two, or did you find her even more terrifying? I didn't find her more terrifying, but I did find her really good. Uh, she she was good in this film. She didn't have a lot to do. Let, let, let's be fair. She didn't have that much that she needed to emote. And she kind of disappears but... after the car crash at the rally, hey? Yeah, she does. Like, you don't see her at Piz Glory at all. It's almost like they um, – I guess they assume that we thought maybe she died in that explosion or something. No, you do see her. You do see her when Bond – She screams though. Well, no, when Bond is up, going up the steps after he escapes from the um, – what do you call it? Oh, no, you're right. That Because, yeah, chronologically that follows it, doesn't it? Yeah. He's there when uh, – we see her when she's giving the gifts to the girls. But you're right. You are right. We don't see her after that. Yeah. So I'm guessing because the car slipped out of control, she's probably in traction after that. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. 
That's all right. I, I do get it, though. <laughs> one, one thing I want to point out, too, a bit of a fact, too, is that one of the reasons why the Diamonds Are Forever follow-up didn't really go through with the, the Blofeld revenge scenario is because Ilsa Steppet passed away before mm-hmm. the movie came out, Diamonds Are Forever, before the production started. Well, we have spoken at length when we looked at You Only Live Twice, the book, at how that being filmed would have been better than a lot of what follows yes. this film. And Diamonds Are Forever was a very strange choice. Yeah. Uh, an alternate title for this film should have been called Double Black Diamonds Forever because of the skiing. <laughs> that was a Double Black Diamonds. That, that's a good <laughs> But are they forever? They're not forever. Well, uh, well, no. Well, I don't know. It depends because like, if you die in that avalanche and you're there, you're going to be on the Double Black Diamond forever. <laughs> that's true. You will, yeah. <laughs> Our talents are wasted here, gentlemen. Oh, they really, right. really are. I thought so. I think so. Right, so let's talk about Piz Gloria because it is a massive setting. It's an incredible uh, incredible scenery right up there in the Jungfrau and you've got your, your Eiger and you've got that section of the Swiss Alps just beautifully uh, in, in front of you there. It's an incredible place to film and the filmmakers did a great job of, I, th- I think, exploiting it. Oh, they did. There's a documentary, um, I think it's called From Above, and it's all about the guy, the cameraman that shot all those aerial shots in the Alps oh, and whatnot. Yeah. Yes. And he's basically like dangling from the under, underneath the helicopter belly from this apparatus filming. Yeah, he seemed to be a pretty awesome guy, that dude. What was his name? Johnny, John someone? John someone, yeah. I forget his last name. I think he passed away recently, like in the past couple of years. Yeah, but he was, no, he was well known for the photography here. that he did. Oh, he was incredible. He lost he lost a leg, too, apparently. Yeah. Really? Yeah, he was a one-legged, uh, or he had a wooden leg. Wow. And that, that's that's what the, the documentary I was watching said. And yeah. uh, he, he committed himself to some pretty incredible shots. And they do look great. They hold up really well, these skiing shots. Oh, yeah. But I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, let's talk a bit more about Piz Glory, the set constructed for the film. I loved it. I thought everything about it's, it's the like, hallways. It's my favorite Bond set. So, oh, it's a beautiful set. It's really awesome, and it's a shame that it blew up. <laughs> well, again, so when I was watching it, it made me think, A, Thunderbirds, but also, B, Kingsman. That's what I felt. As See, I, haven't, I haven't seen any of those Kingsman films. Okay. If, if you liked like the, the Ken Adam like production design of the, yeah. of the Bond films, I recommend seeing that movie. Yeah, okay. like uh, Kingsman <laughs> is very much like a graphic novel. And by graphic, I mean graphic. Um, and but it's you know it's like a, a play on the secret uh, the you know secret service and uh, you probably enjoy it. Don't watch it with uh, your daughter or possibly your wife. Um, yeah. But it's good. And I just when I saw it, it reminded me a bit of uh, Kingsman a bit for the for the set. Um, I, I really enjoyed the set. The set was great. I I, I made a note as I was watching uh, under atmosphere. Although I I suppose that's you know as close as we get to talking about the the filming. Because we spend quite a bit time, a bit of time there too in in the film. Yeah, which we do, we certainly do. I really like that shot. When we were watching Sorry. the movie, yep. Um, that you know, if you look at the modern Bond films or any film nowadays, I find that you don't have that same level of immersion into the yeah. story and the world of the of the story like yeah. you do in like in older films. Well, because what we were saying is because they spend such a long time there, you really get to understand like the you know the interiors. Yeah, and I was yeah. with Josh is that. It almost looks like, especially you know, because the, the late in the late sixties was a lot of like you know wood uh, styling. But I noticed that it almost reminded me of some kind of like mod slash Japanese style inside it, with all the wood and sort of like the way. Yes, the, I, I just can see what you mean. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally can see that. 
That's I liked it. it though. I really did. It is neat, and you're right about how it's mapped out. This film, and I made a note exactly of that. That this film lingers. It seems to linger in in space long enough to get a real feel for the environment, yeah. and I like that. Which it doesn't nice. jump yeah, too quickly. Exactly. And to me, when you're having a character like Bond trying to escape from a place like this and everything that he does to get out and what he does in that place, it gives even more significance exactly. and, and more gravity, yeah. I kind of find, it, to, to, to the, to the storyline. It, it makes you, as the audience, appreciate him escaping because you spent so much time there. You feel like you were there. You're like, wow, that was quite the place. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, remember that time we escaped? Yeah, like you feel like you're a part of him. You're like, this was quite the place and we were able to get out of it. So it gives an urgency, but it also gives the audience for like, wow, that was quite, that was quite something, you know? It feels that like Reed, uh, Michael Reed and uh, Peter Hunt there, it feels like, you know, they really enjoyed filming in, 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 in that place. Like you, it travels you through the, into the hallways, into the, into like the, each individual room. Like you have that like aerial shot going up where, where, he, where he's up full and kilt regalia going up to the Alpine room, the rotating restaurant in the background going on while they're talking. It's just so busy. And just, it's just, it's just so like everything is like, working perfectly like a like a clock almost like all these wheels and gears oh, oh. gears you mean just like the the cable car yeah ex- exactly <laughs> yeah like i think it's, it's all i think all that imagery connects so well in my opinion it does, it does. let me ask yeah. uh, i was going to say about that shot um i i made the note that i really liked the shot of lazimi going up the steps where the camera's kind of tracking him around the steps and then the cat there's an adjustment in the angle to a level and then it pans to show the whole room of girls that's all done in one shot and I, I made the note that that was a really great shot. And then I was watching one of the special features. Apparently, that was the first scene from the Pitch yeah. Gloria that was filmed. Oh, really? And, That's right. I mean, can you guys add some technical know-how to this for me? Because obviously, I can see the pan and I can see the adjustment and angle to level and all that. But is that a crane shot? That would have to be a crane oh, yeah, shot. It would, it, it would have to be, yeah. Because there, that would have to be filmed in a studio, first of all. Because I don't think the Alpine Room and and the interiors of Pitts Gloria, I don't think they were like built on location there. The helipad was built on location, and the shell I think of the of the clinic was built right mm-hmm. uh, with some parts of the exteriors that we see. But I, I believe the Alpine Room and all that was filmed uh, in Pinewood Studios. Are you sure about that? I, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, oh, I know that. I know that some of it was was in Pinewood, but I did think that the um, Alpine Room was there. Actually, you know what? It does say the first production was in was outside of Burns, Switzerland. So maybe it was filmed right on location, perhaps. Anyway, because, it doesn't matter. I, it's a great that, shot. That, 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 there, that, there's, that the set was left as a restaurant there, apparently. Mm, yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of what I thought the the restaurant was, so... We'll look into that for our fact checkers. Yeah, that are we got a couple of fact checks to do. And uh, yeah. again, you know, we're making no apologies for not knowing this. Don't confuse what we're doing here on Bond by Numbers with an expert's journey through, you know, surgical detail of every one of these films. We're enthusiasts. We are uh, appreciators. We're not experts who are trying to redesign the, the James Bond series in some sort right. of technical detail. So uh, if you're looking for that, go look elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a threat to the listener. <laughs> Almost, yeah. Anyway, uh, hey, because I'm a huge Hitchcock fan and because I teach Hitchcock here when I'm teaching film, I spot a lot of stuff that's Hitchcockian. And I love love the dinner scene. Of course, food is part of the plot here with the whole allergy clinic. But yes. 
there's an almost Hitchcockian focus here, I think, at the dinner scene with so many deliberate pictures of food and different angles. You know, you've got concentrations on food and all that stuff. It's very horny. It's very deliberate. It's very mouth-focused. But, you know, then you get the the, the three candles standing straight up in erect fashion. That's something Hitchcock would, that's straight from a Hitchcock film, I'm telling you. Yeah, I I can, I, I, I feel you there on that one. The way he's the way he that they're working the food in this film reminds me a lot of what I might find in like North by Northwest or even like Frenzy, you know, where we get the sausage dinners at the end and stuff. Right. So we're we're in agreement that the Piz Gloria stuff is really good. It's really engaging, and all of this, of course, is backed up by some really nice use of color and lighting throughout all of the scenes. And John Barry's really. Um, it's kind of swanky in some places, but it's never swanky hard and fast. It's always swanky slow, and it's very methodical too, and, and kind of psychological pulses you get in the nighttime stuff. And it, it's all really good. It's working to make a fabric, isn't it? Yeah, it, it makes it seem more serious than it, than than I, I think. I think on paper, it's I think they, those scenes on paper they're probably like ridiculous but they come out better in the film for some reason you know i agree and the thing is is i think for especially for the time 69 that's you know um that kind of set that filming on location like that that you know the sort of just the uh the 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 feel of it you know filming this you know this crazy sort of like evil lair slash um you know mod like evil lair just the evil lair on the top of a mountain that was actually filmed it wasn't just like you know, um, made up. It looks, it's, it's new and people were, I'm sure were, you know, just taken aback. Like it looks so nice. <laughs> it's just, it's really, it does. Good. It does look good. And you see, For when the time, the, it's very impressive. You see when everybody's outside curling, right? I've, I've got a question here. I was going to ask you guys, yeah. like what the heck is that massive vessel hanging around the curling scene out of which they're drinking like some sort of hot liquid thermos like what is it it looks like it looks like the campbell bowl in the ross trophies or some nhl awards that have just been <laughs> smashed together like it, yeah. well it, it, it's just probably hot cider or something I like that say, maybe that's the neo-citron yeah <laughs> yeah maybe maybe that's the neo-citron yeah that's how blofeld's clinic works they use neo-citron yeah no but seriously like is, is that that's what it is right it's a hot liquid thermos it's got to be. It's got to be. Next time you watch that scene, just I, I, that's all I could watch. I know there's all these beautiful girls, like you know, doing the curling yeah, I was stuff. Say, that's all I could. Oh, I wasn't prioritized. Like I feel like it's in the foreground of the shot. Yeah, yeah it's, it's right. massive. It's steamy. Peter Hunt brought it like, to attention for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Anyway, I, I thought it's a really impressive little prop, but. Maybe that's what everybody drinks it out of up there. It was probably you remember. Uh, well, there was a, sorry. Josh and I watched the documentary on the filming of the like the the chases and the um, the, the sort of like the, the demolition derby on the ice there. And they're talking about how they had people and their whole job was to just keep feeding them hot soup and and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if that they okay. literally took that from the the craft services and put it on the table. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Some weird Swiss design that we don't know of. Biggest, maybe biggest pot of hot toddy ever. Yeah, you, you, because you see, it all looks like it's a combined of all these different types of pitchers and cups or whatever. Mm. Maybe it's like a Swiss Army pitcher or something like that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's like the first Swiss briar. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we got Telly Savalas in here, and it's about time we talk about him. Um, and his cigarette holding? Uh, oh, his, c- his cigarette holding, not just that, like his chops in general, I guess. He's great. Well, he, he's great, yeah. Although I do not buy him as Blofeld. I he think he has a couple of good scenes, but I might be disappointing you here, guys, when I say this. I think he is flat 
And I thought he was flat when I first liked and championed the film. Now looking at it, trying to at least with more objective eyes, I think he runs flat again. I I think he's good in the outdoor stuff. I really liked the scene where he was talking to the uh, the other agent, you know, who was trying to sneak up and check on things. I like yeah, yeah. I like the way he handled himself there. That felt quite natural I to agree. me. But that was, yeah. I think he is so flat that when Bond first meets him as Hillary Bray, I think Bond's Hillary Bray outclasses him. Like that, <laughs> wow. that's honestly how I felt. I, I didn't, I get no menace from him. I get no sort of um, like, I don't even get that much mystery from him. He just looks like a, a pharmacist. <laughs> to be honest, I actually liked him. Like I, I okay, right, so cool. in, one, in one scene, I liked it where he, well, obviously it was quite an entrance when he comes through like that fake wall and he's like, hello, uh, Bond, mm-hmm. you know, Commander Bond. I like, I liked his confidence there where like Bond was still waking up and he kind of had, literally he had um, the upper hand uh, because Bond was still woozy on the couch and, you know, levels, he was looking down at him. So he had that, Mm -hmm. but I I liked, I liked that scene, but I would agree with you that probably one of his better scenes was when he was outside talking to the agent that was well done for him. I think generally that once Bond is discovered, he, he does get better. Yes, but when exactly. we're first yeah. when we're yep. first introduced to him, I don't I don't really find him interesting. He's got some wild eyelashes, though. I don't know if you guys checked that out, but yeah. man, those eyelashes that's... could speak their own lines. Yeah, that, that's Telly Savalas there for for, for sure. Yeah. I think what it, what distracted me about him as Blofeld is that I I guess I know I knew of his Kojak persona, yeah. and then like how he holds the cigarette like a, like he would a Tootsie Pop. But I think that was after he did Kojak. I don't know if it was at the same time. Well, 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 regardless, I wasn't born in that time, no, no, fair, so fair, fair, fair. I probably saw a Kojak uh, episode oh, yeah, before yeah. I saw Under Magic Secret Service, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. So it just it just seems to me the guy holds a cigarette a certain way, but you know that that's that, that that's his thing. That was, I agree that his outdoor scene when he, when he was like threatening and 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 give and you know giving the um, grief to the um, climber, um, our MI6 slash Draco guy, um, was 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 really well. And when he does reveal himself to Bond, there is a bit more menace to him, but he is pretty bland as the Count, I guess, as, as you could say, in that yeah. persona yeah. prior to um, the the big reveal. But even then, as the big reveal, I still found Irma Bunt much more terrifying. And I'll say this, too. I think Savalas was serviceable, but mm-hmm. I don't think he's the best Bond villain. No. And um, I still think Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice will always be my Blofeld's. Well, we'll have to see when we get there. Um, you know, I don't want to make too many well, if you statements recall, like, like that. Of course, yeah, he, he is the he's, he's, he's the, very the, memorable. The big guy. In that he's movie. very memorable. Yes, he is. And Telly Savalas is memorable too. I'm just I'm just trying to say he's not. I'll tell you what I remember him for. I like his commitment. And let me tell you what I mean. You see how he works those cassette tapes himself. He's up all night shoveling these cassette tapes in to the girls to listen. And he's he's manning that switchboard himself, man. And I like that. Yeah, he's, he's, you know what? He, I thought, he, yeah. he, he does things. He takes on uh, things hands-on. He really well, does, I, yeah. His physicality say, is good. Yeah, I like seeing all the different tape decks. I was like, that took a long time. Imagine, you know, having to press play all those. All those <laughs> that's right. Hands. And at the right time as well. At the right time. That's exactly. And so uh, it's, that's what the, he, yeah. hasn't, he hasn't outsourced his, his work, you yeah. know, on this master plan. He's doing it himself. Like, Hugo... Yeah. Hugo Drax, I remember Michael Lonsdale and Moonraker. I'm fairly certain he outsources everything he does. Oh, he does. Absolutely. 
Except for throwing beef on the floor to his dogs or something. But yeah, he anyway, did he does we'll that. get there as well. We'll get there as well. But you're right. Irma Bunt has got all of the supervillain lines in this film. Yeah. And she is really the actual creep. And I think she's well, the one we're supposed to be creeped out by. And she kills Tracy in the end. She does. Yeah, she does indeed. Wolfell tells her to do it, but, it, but, 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 it's, but it's her, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, really then we've got the escape. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm sure we want to say a few words about this escape, don't we? Yeah, I would say like it's just one of those things where like in the when I read in the book, um, the novel, but I think outside of the novel, it captures well on screen. Bond is his life is in danger here. It's in peril. And you feel it through this whole sequence. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You do. Like, yeah, you do. The mortality of the character is so strong that like I just couldn't imagine like. I, I I just can't imagine Sean Connery in this sequence because I I don't think I think Connery wouldn't like Bond to be this scared yeah. and and out of his he element. You know what I mean? Situation. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he did a lot of his own stomach the best that he could in the film. I mean, he doesn't hang from like from he did like a lot of the fight scenes and even some of the skiing stuff he did on his own. But it, and they you know they they put in a stuntman when they needed to. But he did a lot of it on his own. So I think the physicality of acting wise for Lazenby also makes the, this, the, these scenes stronger as well. I was going to say a little nod to the sixties was, you know, when all the girls are asleep in their beds and it's all kind of like the lighting. And then you have him like sort of his voiceover. It's very trippy. Yeah. It yeah. Like it is trippy. You're right <laughs> on that. It is trippy. I could listen to Tilly Savalas talk, man, that, like, all, you know, very soothing. Yeah. To be honest with you. A fun fact about, um, about this is that, um, uh, it's this well-known series that came from the 90s is uh, Bruce Timm's uh, like Batman the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series. They were very well done um, adaptations of the DC comic superheroes in the 90s. And Clancy Brown, who was a very well-known um, yeah. support, um, I guess, character actor, he did the voice of Lex Luthor in those series. And his Lex Luthor is excellent. Yeah. And he based his Lex Luthor on Telly Savalas in Hunter Majesty's Secret Service. Didn't know that. Yeah. Little tidbits. Yeah. Little tidbits. But to me, uh, his Lex, Clancy Brown's Lex Luthor, I think, is, is way better uh, villain in, than, uh, t- than Telly Savalas in Hunter Majesty's Secret Service, however. During the ski chase, if I can just kind of shuffle us along a little bit. Uh, of course. During the of course, ski, ski chase. Or uh, along. Or slalom along, sorry. Salam is like what you say yeah, if, yeah. If, if you're... That's, that's a language? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is a form of skiing. Yes. Right, to move us along. Um, you see you see when Bond has kind of taken out these henchmen skiers, right? I don't even know. They can't call them henchmen. They're just bad guys. Um, do you notice that one of the skiers, right, who jumps up straight and he falls straight into a tree... He does an iron cross before he like up in the air. And I noticed this, like he puts his an iron cross, by the way, it's like a little jump move you can yeah. do when you're skiing, right? Yeah. He puts his uh he puts his feet behind him and makes like a really cool X and, <laughs> and, well, he, he, lands, and he lands iron straight into the there. tree. Yeah, but it's kinda <laughs> it's kinda like when he's flying up, he's he knows he's fucked, right? So he's like, I gotta look good if I'm going no, into yeah. the tree. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's really funny. But I like the um I like the shots of him there at, at the at the cliff, you know, and the whatever empty pillowcase they throw over in the shape of a human form, because <laughs> it takes a long time for that thing to hit the ground. Oh, it does, yeah. Oh, man, yeah. I'm surprised that they go, that they went all the way too, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they did, and I like that it's all one continuous shot. It makes it good. 
I think they wanted to emphasize with that, I suppose, you know, Bond again is in danger and the possibility of him falling off that ledge is, you know, is something to worry about. That's right. Yeah. So they do make it real. But the skiing escape stuff is really good. And as you've already gone over the uh, the rescue with Diana Riggs character down below waiting for him, who's fought, you know, her father had told her where she could find Bond, essentially. And so that all works for me. It's a little bit far fetched. Fair enough, but we have to suspend our disbelief. We're watching an action film at the end of the day, and I really like it. I like how at least it's believable she's there looking for him. You know, I believe that. Yeah, it, it, it works yeah. well in the story, absolutely. Yeah, it does, it does. Yeah, it does, it does. And... I find it funny, though, how, like, <laughs> if I may, mm-hmm. so, he, she, how, like, she got her skates off so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she did that. But at least you see her taking them off. You know, they yeah, do, they do think, make some effort. I think, some they, I think they, 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 they would have just saw, like, some guy talking to a girl taking her skates off, and they might have even missed him in that respect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Because they didn't think Bond knew anybody there, right? So To go back to the avalanche uh, scene, I think another thing that's important, and I was just thinking about this now, is that Bond, Bond always escapes death. That's his job. You know, and that's what he does. He's good at it, um, being a secret agent. But here's the thing: is like that's always like people, you know, and machines and gadgets that he can get out of. This is Mother Nature. So like he, like an avalanche. Like no, no human can survive an avalanche. I mean, that big unless you know you have like you know eighteen you know Citroen dogs like ready. So that's why I think <laughs> I think the Neo Citroen dogs are screwed too. Well, you know what I mean? I'm giving them a lot of credit here. Yes, um, <laughs> they are strong dogs. They are. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying that I think obviously with the the majestic uh, – it, it was such a beautifully shot scene. But it's just showing like the power of Mother Nature I mm-hmm. guess because even Bond who escapes death all the time and has a license to kill, he can't – like I mean yes, he outran it. But there was an urgency there like he – you know, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, I want to talk about that avalanche but i still want to scale back a bit more if it's okay guys sure. just to just to feature this back to the village well we haven't yet talked about nina's song and the juxtaposition sure. of the escape Do you know how Christmas trees are grown? so this song is the song that we listen to isn't it when bond and tracy are kind of escaping right also in Bond, before he finds Tracy, it's also playing as well. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I guess more prevalently there, isn't it? But that's when like, he's so terrified, he's so terrified in the crowd that like even like that guy dressed as a bear or whatever scares the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. This is a weird song. There's no getting yeah. away from it, but it's... It's creepy. It's a creepy song. <laughs> it is a kind of creepy song, yes. Um, and I wonder, is it creepy because of the song itself or creepy because of how we're how we're seeing it how we're experiencing it i think it's 60 40 the other thing is i could totally picture this song being played while those chicks are all passed out and telly savalas is like i want to screw with them even more i'm going to play this song and yeah. they're going to wake up with a new knowledge of how christmas trees are made yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know there's a knowledge right but uh I guess, with some info stuffed in their heads at the very least. There you go. Well, Nina, I just did a little work on this. Um, she, interesting enough, she was really popular Danish, part of a Danish act, Nina and Frederick, in the 1950s, right? And she had worked with John Barry before in orchestration settings. And when Barry, you know, added this song to the soundtrack, um, 
I guess she must have figured that it was going to feature in a way different to how it did because <laughs> you don't really well, get so to Barry hear that. So Barry actually wrote this song. It wasn't an original song that they just got for the for the film. Yeah, it was orchestra. Yeah, for the film. Um, it was... Oh, Nina and Frederick. Yes, right. I know. Yeah, but Nina and Frederick, like, this guy Frederick, do you know anything about him? Her husband, her first husband. Um... Well, it's funny because the other day, I, this is the only thing I really know about it, is that I was actually at a, at a Value Village and I almost bought their record. And I, I read up about them. They're kind of like, they were like a folk duo. Yeah, but they did all sorts of stuff, like really well known yeah. for doing Caribbean tunes and like... Yeah, that's the thing. It was almost like, you get, you get it's almost like, um, you know, like a, um, uh, Danish people doing Harry Belafonte and stuff. It's, exa- it's exactly what it was, Jerry. Is that angry Harry Belafonte again? Yeah, but it's true. Like, the, the, they're really popular in the early 60s and... and uh, yeah, like the Jamaican, there's a song like Jamaican Farewell and stuff like that. Yeah, it's funny. I almost bought that record the other day because I'm like, what the heck is this? Did she sing Underneath the Mongo Tree, I wonder? No, no, no. She did, not, she did not sing that. But I'll tell you what's interesting. That's Monty Norman anyway. You're getting your... your oh, yeah, that's right, Monty Norman. You're getting your uh, line across. But I'll tell you what's funny, hey? It's like she and Frederick, right? They had this, this, this career together. Uh, after they separated, Frederick, her husband... Um, got himself embroiled in quite a controversy because he... Oh, no, wait, let me let me finish this off. Frederick... No, let's hang on. Blah, 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 blah. I'll reverse all that. Frederick moved with his girlfriend to... Or he had this Filipino girlfriend or something. Apparently, he got shot down, right? Yes. They were, they were killed. But her second husband, this guy Irving Someone, was the guy responsible um, with another fella for writing the fake biography on Howard Hughes, huh? which got them into a lot of trouble and, you know, they were incarcerated for it. I guess the bluff that they were hoping for was that Howard Hughes is so reclusive, he's not going to take any umbrage against us writing a fake story about his life. And he too, did. Too busy collecting pee jars. Well, whatever, right? But uh, that, that book, which went on to kind of form a lot of popular mythos about him, about Howard Hughes got these guys in a lot of in a lot of bother. So this is that's her second husband, and Frederick and Nina also recorded an album with Louis Armstrong. Now, how's that? Ah, I see the connections forming. Well, I don't know what connected first or second or third, but all of them have connections. John Barry, Nina, Frederick, or not Frederick, uh, Louis Armstrong. Going to the music, would mm-hmm. you say that? I guess in the vein of Goldfinger, of From Usher of Love, from, you know, any of the Bond songs, would you say that We Have All the Time in the World is the Bond song or like the theme song for OHMSS or is it Barry's signature theme? For me, it's Barry's signature theme because of how it, I mean, uh, I guess because I like it. I think it's great. I think the score is really powerful in this film. Um, the the song is is okay too for the relationship, but I don't think the relationship is. I no, I I, I don't. I, I see the, I see the theme, the title theme. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the instrumental as the theme for the story, and the other is just kind of like a, a theme for like a a motif for the relationship. But that's that's just how I look at it. I appreciate other people's, you know, look at it differently. I wanted to mention this is not related to that, but I also want I wanted to mention that um, the t- the title. Do you guys understand sort of like the title of the movie and where that comes from? Um, probably not. If you're asking, so go ahead. So basically, so on Her Majesty's Secret Service, obviously it's about you know 
obviously he's in the Secret Service, but it actually basically there was a like a it's a basically it's an initial for the original actual um, uh, term on her on her Majesty's service is basically um, it's like an official franking for um, correspondence for government departments. That's what it is. All right. So I think it was almost kind of like a I don't want to say like a, a, I guess it's kind of like a play on it. Mm-hmm. Because it's on Her Majesty's Secret Service, because you sure as hell wouldn't see that on a franking on a <laughs> on an envelope. <laughs> um, okay, so what you're saying is at the time, or perhaps in the know the know how circles or the know circles, this it, the title makes more sense. It has context. Yeah. So basically, I think what it is is that anyone working for uh, like the the government, when you're working somewhere for the government, it would say that like it would be stamped on his or her majesty. Like so, you know, pre uh, po- uh, pre uh, Second World War or, or during when it was the king, I would say on his majesty. It's the same thing. It's like on his majesty's service. So I think it was kind of a play on that with um, with the franking for a correspondence like that. Hmm. I didn't know that, Josh. Any I, idea of that? Um, I agree with I agree with Jeff says. Um, he, he knows more about it than I do. It's was- funny because I one of the things I collect as well as like military stuff is I I collect some postal history as well and mostly military postal history and I do actually have an envelope that says on her uh, on her Majesty's service actually on His Majesty's service from the uh, during World War Two for like a government. Uh, like a government sort of correspondence. It's also important to note in regard to correspondence that we hear the title of the film itself in the in the movie, um, in 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 the, in the scene where Bond tenders his resignation. Right? Do we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's on her. Yeah, oh, on yeah. her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. Hmm. And then Money Penny, of course, changes it to a fortnight's leave. Thankfully. Anyway, sorry. I just wanted to mention that because. Uh, I thought it would be a nice little tidbit there. It is a good tidbit. And it moves us on a little bit, or it forces us to move on anyway, because I think we were getting wrapped up there in that Nina stuff that probably wasn't going anywhere. But I thought that was interesting. But we do know how Christmas trees are grown now, so... Well, we we know more than we did before, at least. More than we did. Yeah. Well, look, I got a question for you, okay? And this is... I, I don't know how the continuity worked to you guys when you watched it, but I picked up on this, and I laughed. Because although it's it's certainly not what happened, it made me think of a whole different story, okay? So, <clears throat> right, Bond and Tracy, like, we'll get into the proposal in a few moments, right? That whole scene. And uh, I'll, I'll share with you <laughs> some of my university essay on it. But, um, like, when they wake up the next morning, right, and they're away, that's when Blofeld on skis shows up. And yeah, finds and he sees, their car. He sees the car there in the so barn. So were they skiing all night? <laughs> like were they just skiing all night? That's like oh yeah. That's did they totally... ski? Did they ski the distance that the other guys drove? <laughs> who, who knows? And where were they going when they were skiing? That's the question. I mean, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure they're on downhill skis and they were doing cross country skiing if they're going to reach that place. They would have such lactic acid buildup. Oh, man, you're right. They would. They would. Also, man, I don't know about you, but like my shins would be killing me because of the ski boots. <laughs> I don't even know how they could make out after. I think they, I think they were missing the uh, cello because they obviously didn't make it to the border. The ch- I think the cello case could have helped them out. Oh, yeah. Also, what I'm guessing is that I'm thinking that it was almost more like a marathon of skiing. And they probably had 
um, you know, neocitron dogs like every every little bit of like, checkpoints, and I help them. When you when you rewrite the story, you're gonna include so many like, dogs in every scene. It's gonna be like a magic eye puzzle. I do appreciate dogs uh, in film. Okay, I don't like Airbud though. Let's not. Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> Never seen it. Good. Neither have I. Um, let me ask you this, eh? Why in the hell, after escaping, do Bond and Tracy go back up skiing so they can get stuck in an avalanche? Why do they even go back on the mountain? That's what I'm wondering. Like, where are they going? <laughs> what the hell is their plan? Like, what I are they gonna do? Well, I think you know. Two young lovers. Okay, sure. They're, it's their their heads in the clouds, literally, uh, and so. They... Uh, but there's also the danger behind them. I don't know. It seems like Bond would have probably wanted to get out of Dodge as soon as possible. Yeah, it seems really yeah. weird to me that yeah, they would just do this. It's quite odd. Yeah, not not have like a cross country ski day. Like, what are you going to do? Get apple cider or something yeah. in the town afterwards, and right. and and watch like a, a skate show or something. Like, let's go get a top. Let's share a Toblerone. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's definitely one of the more. Uh, blatant plot devices that we've got. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Anyway, I, I didn't, that didn't really bother me. I just because I'm yeah. you know I'm very much engaged and I'm invested. It it just kind of made me feel like oh this is weird, a bit problematic. But okay, let's go <laughs> ahead with it. Yeah, that's true. Fun fact: Di- Diana Rigg was like on her knees on some kind of like pull cart in, in all the close-up shots that you saw of her skiing. Those insert shots are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm not blaming the film. You know, I'm yeah, that's stupid, right? That's like saying that the sound on a, you know, on a 1920s Victrola is poor. Like, yeah, okay, fair but enough. What you expect? Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I'm not I'm not holding it to it, but it no. really stands out, doesn't it? How? But how about like that match on like when they I think when they splice the film together with the avalanche and then like the skiers like almost like little <laughs> stick men. Almost. Well, they are. They're literally miniatures. The well, they are that's miniatures. what. It, yeah, it was, uh, it was CGI, wasn't it? Didn't they put that in? A- uh, not CGI. Not CGI. It was well, was it rear, CGI. rear projection or something? Yeah, yeah rear yeah, projection. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. All right. So the view of them as miniature was a rear projected shot. Hmm, cool. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, look, we're getting there. We're getting to the to the end of this, guys. We then have the Assault on Piz Gloria, which has all kinds of neat stylistic uh, stylistic explosions doesn't it i mean not not just the physical explosions but i like all kinds of stuff that's going on here yeah yeah oh yeah i like the sunset i like the sunset helicopters i like the approach at, at dusk it's all good stuff or is it and then all the poetic language no, from dusk. blofeld and tracy and stuff and because tracy's obviously stalling i kind of mm. like how it's a very good character development for her how it jumps from her being captured Bond worrying about her and then talk calling Draco. And then all of a sudden we see that she's not really in danger at all. Yeah, it looks yeah. like Blofeld's besotted with her because he want, he's a wannabe count mm-hmm. and this is a countess. And it seems like, you know, he wants her to be his bride. Like he doesn't even want to kill her in that sequence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah, it's kind of weird how quickly he takes to her, but maybe that's it. He's just fascinated by an actual royal figure. I think yeah. I think that's yeah. probably yeah, and that or, to me yeah, that's that's kind of what we we can. And it's good for her character because it just shows how well how good she, how how good she is at playing that role, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess so. Um, uh, just to ask you guys, is it dawn or is it dusk that they make the assault? It seems like it. it seems like it's it, it's, it's evening, it's, right? It's it's dusk. Yeah, I think it's yeah. dusk. Okay, right. I guess it doesn't doesn't really matter, but I'm just uh, just wondering. Uh, Okay, so yeah, that I mean that stuff's really good. Like I like that; it's fun. Um, I do though have, again, it, it's a problem, and it's a problem in context for me. But you know, we've got quiet racism all through this film. Yeah. 
you've got the most sexualized act in the film, right? That black woman just, you know, chewing on the banana, right? You yeah. got that one. Well, yeah, that was then you've got the, the most gruesome murderer is a black man with a flamethrower who seems to really be getting pleasure out of burning that tunnel out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we would have, we would have, we would have nodded his head at that. <laughs> I think he would have approved that. But do, do you notice these little touches? Like, why does it have to be a black man? Like, the only black man in the cast happens to be the one that has a flamethrower, right? And he's burning everybody. In, in to play devil's advocate here and just in defense of mm-hmm. the filmmakers in this particular case, yep. this guy was shown earlier on as an antagonist for Bond and then you see him in the car with the knife to him and he's one of Draco's guys. Maybe they want to give him a badass scene, you know? But yeah. we can't help think about the racial politics of the time and and see whether or not this is a good or bad thing, though. Yeah. I, well, yeah, Exactly. I, I don't know. I just I just noticed these things, you know, as I'm watching it. Like, isn't yeah. it funny how the most sexualized and the most gruesome, uh, most violent are still kind of black behavior type things? And, and what about that other that other stereotyping that you see in the in the, in the movie in that particular sequence? Um, all scientists are crazy mad guys that throw yeah. uh, like. Uh, beakers or t- test tubes <laughs> at, uh, at, at at the good guy, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's one of my favorite moments is when Bond just like shoots that guy and he's like, he looks and, and Lazami does it really well. He just looks at like the acid or whatever the fuck it is like on on the glass, right? Of the door. Yeah, that is actually a good one. Yeah. yeah and then there's that whole thing like you, you mentioned it like the bat cave. It, it, I mean, to me, it looked like something from like, you know, um, uh, uh, Hogwarts or something, you know, but yeah, it is it's definitely a bad kid. <laughs> it's definitely weird that this yeah. this thing is just there. Like, oh yeah, it's totally natural for me to go be meeting a count. Like, what does what does Blofeld think? Right. I wish, man, if I could if I could get a copy of his diary, I would read the hell out of it. <laughs> it's just it's strange to think that he, as a cover, this this would work for him, you know. Yeah. Although maybe that's it. Maybe he's not he's not bothered about holding a cover. Right. No, he, as long as people think that he, that he is yeah. who he is, he's happy with that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But it's a cool set, regardless, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's wonderful. And that was a Pinewood set, wasn't it? Uh, the the underground stuff in the laboratory, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. I like it. Yeah, so, okay. Do you want to then just... Do you want to say anything else about the, the whole sequence, the attack of Piz Glory? Do, do you want to go there, or do you think we, we've dealt with it enough? As much as I like, I really liked uh, Tracy as a character in the film. I think one part of the writing here, um, do you, I, this is how I, I don't know how I feel about it quite yet, but I'd like to hear some point of view. Don't you find she kind of turns into action girl, like all, all of a sudden in this sequence? Because you you were kind of talking about earlier about the the dialogue between her and Blofeld and all that, and how she she seems to have like him wrapped around his have have him wrapped around her finger already, and she's stalling him for something. Then all of a sudden she turns into action girl fighting Gunther. Did you find that a believable scenario? No, but there's so much going on around her that I, I just kind of accepted it as she like, yeah. because she knew what was going to happen. She knew her dad was coming, and I, I didn't buy her as action girl. No, not really. But she is reckless, and I guess there's enough blueprint in her character writing to allow for her to be a believable kick-ass. And then at the same time, they're also playing to the audience that they want to see Emma Peel in action, right? Yeah, exactly. You're exactly yeah, right. I think that, you, uh, yeah, that would make sense too. There's a precedent there for her as a tough woman. Yeah. Exactly. And the audience sees it and they're probably expecting it. So for it sure. was a good especially, fit. Especially even with the car chase too, right? Like it's mm-hmm. not just not just guys. Like, you know, yeah, Steve McQueen did it pretty good with a, you know, 68 
uh, Mustang, but man, she can do pretty good with. Uh, yeah. Well, I think the car chase works well with her devil may care nature. I can see her yeah. adapting to that very easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, so can I. But um, I, by but the I, way, I, but, but I guess you know, as a bored countess, while this guy was obviously messing around with his mistresses or what have you, um, she must have learned like martial arts training in between. And she is the daughter of a mafia don, so I so, mean, yeah, she'd know how to protect herself. Exactly. And earlier, when I uh, mistakenly said that the car was a Lancia, oh, yeah. uh, you guys obviously were right, and you are, but I said that because some part novel. of my brain was telling me that it was, and in the novel, that's what she okay, drives. Okay, there you go, and that's fair, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, then you're not really wrong. It's just in this... Well, I'm context. wrong for what we're talking about, that's yeah, for sure. Right, guys, so look, uh, I mean, we've, we then got the ending, right? Uh, we might agree, we might disagree on this. I, I remember seeing uh, Peter Hunt talk about how this ending scene was actually, he wasn't certain if he was going to use it, right, at the end yes. of this or the beginning of the next one. Uh, given the fact that Connery came back, it's probably better <laughs> that, he say, yeah. that he did it this way. But, I mean, how do, you, how do you like the ending here? I mean, Josh, I think I know your feelings through your plot summary. Jeff, what did you think of it? I liked it. Um, I, I did. Um, I thought it was good. I thought, the thing is, is that it... Um, it was really different. It, it kind of added to the whole thing like, wow, Bond, you know, it's different. You're getting different emotions and it's a different Bond and it's a different movie. So this is, it's all kind of hitting all those different sort of new new phases for Bond where he gets married and then, you know, his wife dies and then it shows him emoting a lot. Like, you know, the tears and all this kind of stuff. This is quite different. So I think Wazmi did a good job with that He scene. did, he did. And so I, I liked it just from the whole, the whole idea of this film just being like its own beast. Uh, and I, I think it worked for this film, where it, it may not have worked in other Bond films. Yeah, Josh, you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I, I kind of think it makes. I think it's partly why this film stands out because yeah. so many is because this, of the ending yeah. and, and and whatnot. It adds to the gravitas of the story that Peter Hunt was trying to tell, that Fleming was trying to was was trying to tell, and I think they pulled that off great. And I love all the callbacks, you know, throughout the series, like. We all, if you've seen any Sean Connery Bond, he's he's always throwing his hat to Money Penny when he walks in to to CM, right? And then you have that great moment where you wonder is is M, is, is is Money Penny over those years? Is she just putting up with Bond because he's just like who he is? But she actually does have feelings for him, and the fact that like when he throws when he throws the hat and catches it, part of me. And she catches it. Part of me just I would almost be if Sean Connery had done that, that would have been like almost like the coup de grace. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Now, mm. if Bond ever married Money Penny, the movie would be called Dial M for Money Penny. <laughs> <laughs> You're carving yourself out a niche here, Jeff. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying. You're doing you well, got a Hitchcock man. reference in there too. Well, that, that's the other yeah. thing. Is that you, I was going to mention that when you were saying Hitchcock, I kind of just came up with that. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what? So what do you think? Scott? What do you think of the ending? Yeah, what do you think? I li I liked it. I did like it. I, I liked it when I watched it. I like it still. Uh, it's it's very difficult for me to say how well does Lazenby deliver the lines. Um, you know, in comparison to other actors, because I don't think that's fair. He does no. he does his way, and he does it well. It it's a good way to end the film. It's tight to the story. I appreciate that. I don't think that this is a of all the Bond stories that we've read, Josh, and that we've studied. I don't think an adaptation. You I don't think you should screw around with an adaptation of this book because it is it, it's it's about Bond's journey in a in a new way, and so a new Bond for the new 
Bond is good. You know, I like yes. it. Uh, and I'm glad that he, glad they did it this way. Um, I'm disappointed. Kenny Dalton was too was too young for that. Eh? I think he could have done it well. Mm. I'm disappointed it wasn't a Maserati though that uh, ah. Bond flew by in because that's what it was in the book. Oh yeah, the Maserati. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I gotta say that I think be, it being 1969 and being present, like they weren't it for the movie. Is I think 1969 really worked well for this film. Like I, I, I didn't read the books like you guys did, but I'd have to say for what this movie was. And again, it was almost kind of like its own because you know they never used them again, and they, you know they're trying different things with editing and and uh, the camera and, and all that kind of stuff. You can take then, his agent for why they well, yes, why they didn't true. use him again. That guy was yeah. an idiot. And then you know him looking like Ringo Starr after. Um, yeah, did you see the footage, Scott, of like Lazenby like a year later? Yeah. Uh, yeah, with the beard and all that stuff. Yeah, I feel like he was. Jeff Lee's like, who the heck is this guy? I'm like, like, no, why does he say, oh, wow. And I was like, wow. I feel like, I'm like, am I looking at, at interviews for like the Let It Be album? Like, I was like, what is this, Paul McCartney? Yeah. And like 20 years later, then or 30 years later, you see him in 2002 he or whatever. It looks like Brian Cox or something. It looks like Brian Cox. He has like an American yeah, accent. Like an American. <laughs> but anyway, so what I was getting at is I think it's, it's a good thing that this film was made in 1969. Mm-hmm. It fits, it fits the feeling I, of the time. Yeah, because I don't think like a, you know, um, like a, a Connery era as in the earlier 60s would have done it as well. Okay, fair point. And I, That's I, my point. Yeah, okay. And maybe Connery uh, – I mean we don't know. Connery could possibly no, no, have pulled it off. He couldn't do but, it. But would they have directed him to or, 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 or would they have allowed him to do it? That's so the thing. Part of me is saying for, for where they were with – special effects and filming and all that kind of stuff. So that's the other part I was going to get at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I, that's one of my... Well, we, yeah, you're on the cusp of going from like the studio system yeah. to more independent style filmmaking with different types of camera angles yeah. and filters, different camera positions. The technology of camera of the camera is getting more compact. They can do much more with it. Yeah. They can put like... Um, uh, like in Bullet, and I guess Peter Hunt did it with o- with OHMSS. You put the actual like mic inside the muffler, but next to the well, muffler exactly. of the car, well, so you exactly, can hear every exactly. roar of the engine. Yeah, like so, there was so much experimental filmmaking that was tried 60s, with this movie. Exactly, is that's why I think this film was good for for that year. Like I don't think it would have worked at a 62 or 63, 64 because of things like you know a Bullet when they they decided to put yeah. the like what Josh was saying, put the mics. In the engine block, because when you when you see that first chase with her in the in the cougar, it's amazing, and it really feels like you're watching like a you know like a, a, a 60s chase scene. It's just not San Francisco. It's almost naturalistic, almost how they go into the stock car rally. Yeah. Like the stock car rally scene doesn't even seem tacked on. No, you know no, what no, I mean? Yeah, yeah. It seems like just a cogent move on her part to lose the tail, right? Mm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I, I'm I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but no, I, you're not. I just it's think- nice. I'm I'm enjoying listening to you guys on this point. So, anyways, what I'm I'm gonna close out by saying that uh, OHMSS wouldn't I don't personally think it would have worked being an earlier film if it was filmed earlier on in the '60s. I don't think it I don't think it would have had the flair, and I, and I think with what they used with new type technology and filmmaking capabilities, it would not have uh, I don't think it would have looked as good. Plus, plus Bond itself as a franchise had earned enough right. money and yes, a muscle exactly. to, to do some of the stuff. Exactly. Because exactly. that could have – yeah, exactly. That's another point I, I should have looked into. That's well, look, guys. This sounds like a very natural place for us to bring in the Money Penny scoring. 
Yeah. Correct. Who wants to go first? I'll let Josh go. So we're going with story first. That's the category. Well, whatever. We've, we've got three components. We do story. Yeah. We do acting. We do atmosphere. We've talked yeah. about each of these things a lot today so far. So, I mean, yeah, fire on whatever order you want. I think, um, you know, despite what, despite my feelings for some of the kind of cheesy aspects of the Pitts Gloria middle sequence with the girls and all that, despite how it was part of the story, um, I found that part kind of rather weak. And I think it's lesser than, say, you know, the parts following that and before that. Um, but I found overall that the story was very strong. It was a good adaptation of the book that I remember. And I think anyone watching the film, I think will be captivated by the story of its gravity. That is not a traditional bond movie that we have gadgets everywhere that he's always, you know, going to make a, a snicker, some snide remark to, you know, uh, on the situation. It's actually like he's in danger through this whole movie. And there's almost like a, a mortality, um, theme that's like going through the entire script to me that that leads to like the almost the uh inevitable conclusion that it comes to and so for that i give the story an eight okay um acting i gave this a seven okay i think diana rigg is the strongest uh thespian in the film I think Savalas and Gabriel Frazetti and even to an extent Lazenby, they do a good job. They're charismatic. Lazenby holds, of course, as you said, uh, sorry, Rig holds uh, uh, Lazenby up for the duration. But, you know, she gives, I think she gave, despite the tensions that we hear about them they had on the set, I think she gave him inspiration to really push himself in the role. And I, I think he comes out quite good. Not great, but good. And uh, Elsa Pat uh, as uh, Bunt is also a strong player. She's really menacing. But overall, I think it's the emotion of the story and the atmosphere around it that's the strongest part of this movie. And I, I think acting seven just for, I think, Rig on her own and then I, and the serviceable performances by everybody else, I think seven is a deserving rating. Seven money pennies for the acting. And atmosphere. Atmosphere is actually what I gave the highest... Uh, mark two. I gave 9.5. Why did you deduct a half point? Uh, just, just, just that I found the whole thing with, again, going back to Blofeld's Angels of Death, the whole kind of like weird carry-on kind of atmosphere like those British films in the 70s where there's a bunch of horny guys all <laughs> messing with girls and stuff. I just found that part just like took away from Carry the on down the of, Kyber, yeah. Those yeah, of, <laughs> yeah. Like j just the impetus of, of of the story, I think, was robbed by that. And I found that like it also kind of made the atmosphere. This it, it reminded me of like the '60s with like the hypnotism and all that, and the lights and everything, and the, and just like the music playing, like do 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 do. Like it just to <laughs> me, it just it just like just didn't fit the rest of the movie, in my opinion. It's like its own little uh, vignette inside it, and I think that took away some of the atmosphere of the movie for me. Okay. But everything else, like the tension on the ski slopes, on the mountain, in the town, uh, just this, this, the set, like the sound editing with like the bells in the, in the shop and the gunfire and the, you know, the mics and the mufflers of the cars and the explosions and the helicopters and the machine guns. Uh, and just like the, the, the sense of dread and fear and, and just going through the entire story, through the filters, through the camera work. Um, everything about the atmosphere of, of Under Magic Secret Service, combine that with the the original story that it offers as a Bond film, I think 9.5 is, I think, is the best that I can possibly give it. 
Okay, uh, I'm happy to go next, and then Jeff will give you the yeah, last word course, and your money and your money penny scoring. Oh, sure. I was kind of similar to you, BFG, in terms of uh, kind of scoring the, the the story, and I <clears throat> I felt as though the story was good. I thought the story was actually better than good. I thought it was very good. It was Excellent. let let down a little bit by I felt some of these scenes that were stretched on. Um, midsection at Piz Gloria was good, but I did get a bit dulled out with some of the chat with uh, Draco, and I didn't always see the relationship there. You know, I, I, as I've already said, I don't really like the relationship him and his daughter. I think is weak because the Fleming relationship in the source material is a bit weak. I would have liked to have seen something a little bit more there, but for the action film and for bringing everybody together, it made sense enough. Yeah, the story is compelling. Uh, I would personally have liked to have seen more discussion about, uh, even even if it had to come in a flouncy info drop, I would have liked more about what the master plan is and how is it that this is going to work its way out. You know, like I would have liked to have more menace about the big picture sold to me. And I got it through the atmosphere, don't get me wrong, but I would like to yes. have had a bit more of it in the script so that I felt like it wasn't just Bond in peril as a person, but yeah, Bond yeah, is yeah. fighting against something that matters, you know? Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, for like, sure, for sure. Blofeld's plan to use an old Western term doesn't hold water. Uh, yeah, it, it, we need a little it, more sustenance to know, like, what's what's really turning his crank here. Like, we, mm -hmm. we, we have an overall idea, but it would have been nice to have a little more specific yeah so i went 7.5 for the story because i also put into the story the screenplay and some of the lines which were so you know pretty obviously written for for connery um or for that type of bond to continue just didn't really work with the delivery of the actor and that's not lazenby's fault i think that's no. a script that's a script thing but the acting i i did have trouble with in some places and again I'm not blaming Lazenby. If he had done two, if he had done three, he would have found his groove and we would have yeah, we would have found exactly. him. We would have found yeah. him enjoyable in his own way, you know. But it doesn't remove the fact that he only did one. And it doesn't remove the fact that there is still a problem when I'm watching him being outclassed by Diana Rigg and watching him outclass Telly Savalas. Like, this stuff stands out for me. Uh, does it stand out enough to fail it? Absolutely not. No, it doesn't. But I did go 6.5 for the acting because, to me, there's enough fluctuations in who I'm buying into like the fact that I like the guy that beats up his daughter more than maybe the central character, eh, that's a problem for me. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I went 6.5. So I'm, I'm in the same ballpark as you. But for the atmosphere, I agree with you 100%. This is where the film really earns its keep and I think its legacy. The score, the filming, the color, you well, know, the, the sets, yeah, the set absolutely. designs, everything Sorry. about this works. Aesthetically, it's a great oh, film. Oh. And there's yeah. so much to take out of the, of the picture. So I went for a nine on atmosphere. And that brings me to a total of 23. And you're at 24.5. So Ooh. Jeff, over to you. Well, okay, so again with the story, I, I liked the story quite a bit. Um, I mean, there, it was pretty, it was very solid for me. Uh, watching it again for the first time, I thought it was very good. There was, you know, little things here and there, like you guys were mentioning. Basically, I'm kind of rehashing what you guys are saying, and I, I would agree. Um, so I'm actually going to give the story, a, I'm going to give it seven and a half. Okay. I thought it was it's pretty decent. Again, just for the, for the time, I thought like the way, the, I mean, I guess that's maybe more atmosphere or just sort of like, the production, but I thought it was a pretty good story for the time. It worked again for 1969, how it was done. The acting I, I liked, um, but again, 
what I'm basing it on is like Diana Rigg was fantastic, uh, and I, I appreciated uh, Telly Savalas. I know that you weren't a huge fan, but I actually I actually enjoyed uh, like Josh calls him um, Captain Peroxide, but I enjoy, I enjoyed even though he didn't really talk, but I appreciated him as a fairly realistic kind of operative. Uh, yeah, I did, too. I did, too. I did, too. I thought he was pretty good. He was played by uh, Bernard Horsfall, right? The guy who played Campbell, you mean? And Yeah, and so yeah, I feel good. like I liked him, but I also, whenever I looked at him, though, I figured, like, he must play, like, an organ in, like, a new wave band <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but but I, I, I liked him just sort of being this stoic operative. And he, they, they didn't, no one, you know, they didn't hitch over the head with what he did. Like, you could just tell he had these long sort of, he had this look in his eyes, like you know, when he just looked at the balcony, mm-hmm. and he knew it was time to bring over the crane. Like he just, there's something about him that I, I really enjoyed him as an operative. Mm-hmm. And it was also neat where you're just like, are you MI6? Mm-hmm. Are you like who? Like what are you? But I just, you knew that he was like an operative and a spy, and I thought he was good. So I actually enjoyed him for these little bits. I thought he actually added a lot. He, he yeah, did. He really did. Like a, yeah. He's kind of like a bay leaf in the soup. It's like. You know, there's one of him, but but it adds a lot of flavor. You're right, yeah. man. That's that's a good thing. And in the story, you you should read this book actually because his role is a little better understood in the book. Okay, then I I will do that. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, obviously, I liked I liked Lazenby, and I, I liked how they kind of gave him like you know he emoted more, and he wasn't just like uh, slap a girl and and uh, you know. Uh, grab her and say everything's going to be okay, whatever that kind of thing. He he emoted more, and I appreciated that. I I really enjoyed Diana Rigg, um, and I, I liked how she kind of had a lot more power to her, and she had you know, she wasn't just like pretty. She definitely had some chops, and I think that also I think they probably had to gear her role towards what she's already done yeah. on on um, you know on film and on stage. I think that so actually okay. Anyways, long story short, I'm a seven and a half for me. Okay. And like similar with everyone else with atmosphere, I gave it nine point five because it, this movie was just watching again. I was like, this is just a masterpiece for everything for um, you know the mise en scene, everything. It just it felt like this is you know uh, this is a Bond film, just the way it felt. Like the, the acting, everything that went into it, it was fantastic. Uh, and watching it, it, it's just enjoyable to watch. Um, and again, what, I, I'm going to say this again is this film I think is important because it's showing little, little tidbits of where the film industry for action movies in general were going, w- whether it be with like the car chases, uh, with the editing that was going to be like for the Kung Fu movies as goofy as it was. Um, and, and also just sort of how, um, the, and obviously with the, um, all the different types of filming, you know, with the helicopter and the, and the skiing with the camera, um, the, the dedication and the, the 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 technology that we're using, it really made the atmosphere. It made you really appreciate it. Uh, so I'm giving it 9.5. Excellent. That brings you to a 24.5. So this is our highest rated film thus yeah. far. Up, well, yeah. actually, and you you guys both liked The Living Daylights at a score higher than this. Really? Uh, oh, interesting. Interesting. You both did, yeah. yeah but- yeah, that doesn't mean it's going to show up higher on your ranking. It's just yeah. Yeah. Te- technically you gave the component marks a little higher. Uh, although the atmosphere, this was the highest mark that yeah, any of us had far. given. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. This this yeah because I I gotta say when I watched it again I was like okay because it's funny because when I watched the trailer I was like oh man this looks like a, I said to Josh I'm like 
this looks like a golden harvest like the way that like the trailer didn't really because i hadn't seen it in a while so i mm-hmm. we watched the trailer first in the film and i was like oh and then when i watched the movie i was like okay yeah no this is like way better than that teaser trailer i watched if you think your gal's a good looker oh, man. take a look at this guy's dolls <laughs> yeah it's like, it's like stan lee like, dialogue uh, from the 60s yeah like, oh man but well, no it, it, solid i believe then that we can all agree atmosphere is the strongest suit in this yeah. in this production and I guess that's a nice way then not just to lead into um, uh, my own recitation of some of my university work which is yeah. only going to be a short moment I promise but uh, also our grandmother's review of this Josh oh, yes. <laughs> we yeah. can play that for you as well but let me first uh, talk to you about this uh, marriage scene I wrote an essay back in October of 2000 okay while at Mount Allison University in Sackville New Brunswick for a reading films course a third year English course I wrote a, on a deconstruction of a scene from this film so this will tell you where my head was as a Bond fan back then okay nearly 20 years ago the scene I'm, I'm going to talk about is the barn proposal scene which was filmed on the 21st of March, 1969. So I'll read you just a little bit of this and uh, see what you think. I'm going to skip over the first bit. Uh, Right, so my analysis picks up here at one hour and 50 into the film and contains two-part division, one which I refer to as a tilt-dolly long shot. This shot establishes the area and the character proxemics and moves from a low angle to high without cutting. The second portion of the selected segment is the short dialogue scene that comes about after the characters have been shown in their environment. I'm just going to skip on to the, uh, to, the, to the part of the scene that I really like just before. Uh, the only objects located in the midground are the two actors, the blanket that they're lying on and the hay of the ground surface. Rig is wearing a long golden brown fur coat with a beige turtleneck and Lazenby is dressed in a pale blue ski suit with a white turtleneck. The blanket they're lying on is checkered red and black and the hay which supports the blanket is shimmering bright brown, complementing Rig's clothing and hair. Although the colors here are warm and do hint at emotional tension and stimulation, the relaxed positions of the bodies are in, and the isolation of the two figures strongly reflects a serene and tranquil setting. Hunt's mise-en-scene is precisely controlled here in closed form, suggesting the idea of predetermination and the sealing of fates. The tilt-dolly shot comes to an end at 1.50.35, and the camera cuts to a close-up of Rig rolling onto her side, looking down from above on Lazenby, who is still lying horizontal. For the dialogue segment, the second part of my analysis, the camera is made to do some interesting things, and Hunt's character proxemics are of key importance in understanding the the film's overall intentions. The entire dialogue segment is shot in cause and effect close-up from Rig to Lazenby and vice versa. In all, there are four camera cuts while one actor stops speaking and the other replies, and with each of these cuts comes a change from one angle to another. The first close-up shows Rig from the shoulders up, from a high angle looking down onto Lazenby, who is represented only by the side of his head. The camera seems to be buried into the ground next to his head, looking up at Rig while she's speaking. Although it's a close-up, the low angle clearly positions Rig at the top of the film in a commanding authority. Now, the reason I want to read that bit is because that's basically her the whole film through, right? Every time the two characters are together, if she's not filmed from an angle that gives her power, then she certainly holds it as her performance, doesn't that? That's a good point. That's right. Absolutely. And it's funny, you know, I'm looking back at this pretentious essay that you write as a friggin' university student where you're trying to impress an examiner. By the way, overall, I got a B plus for this thing. 
Um, that's bullshit. Honestly, that's bullshit because that sounded excellent, man. Well, throughout the course of this film, Lazenby's bond is definitely in control of his surroundings, but not over Diana Rigg. Rigg is framed as the authority in the majority of their scenes together, and for the first time in the series, now five films in eight years running, Bond has encountered a female counterpart who cannot be dominated. Instead, Tracy is the controlling figure in this key segment. The construction of the mise-en-scene conventions here, tight framing, character proximic, camera angles, clearly reflect a change. Use of natural lighting is made in most of the film external locale scenes but I think a more formalist approach was embraced by Hunt for the barn scene where Bond proposes because capturing the expressive essence of romance calls for something more artistic more than anything else though I find this segment on Her Majesty's Secret Service intriguing because it creatively plays on traditional expectations of the James Bond character in terms of gender roles in society and represents a change in both characters without being too blatant or commanding yeah so the, uh, the, the comment was Scott the description is carefully done. It might be more effective to state your thesis that the mise-en-scene plays on expectations of Bond earlier and to push each of your observations analytically in the direction of that thesis. B+. Plus. Uh, yeah, uh. I'm thinking, okay, fair enough. This guy was tough to please. He taught me two drama courses as well. Yeah. Anyway, anyway B+. Plus, but uh, thank you for indulging me in that. The, the actual only reason... I even shared that is because I was cleaning up my classroom and I, I brought in a lot of my own university essays to show kids how to structure when they're doing their university prep stuff with me, kind of how, to, how you can structure a, an argument. And that was just one that I had in the pile and I thought, oh, I'll have to use it. But it was rather pigeoned in, so I appreciate your patience there. No, yeah, no problem. Yeah, no, it, 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 was, uh, it was very illuminating. One I want to point out too about Rig as well, I mean, we're, we're discussing about, yeah, Rig is also unlike other Bond girls, and I'm not I'm in no possible way am I trying to, you know, come off as a jerk here or anything, but she doesn't look like other Bond girls either. No, she really doesn't. She she doesn't. Her features she, are very different. Yeah, her features are different. I she, mean, she's, she's beautiful. She's, 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 she's beautiful. She's very pretty, but she's not like she's not like pinup kind of thing. I mean, she's not that's supermodel why, pretty. No, but and that's why I think it works for her to have the power that she has and and, um, and respects in the film. That makes more sense than if it was like um, Bridget Bardot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think Bardot would have been terrible. In that oh, scene, no, no. I, I'm, yes, I'm just saying that, you know. Mm-hmm. If, if it's not like Godard or someone yeah, like that, yeah, Bar, 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 Bardot is, I don't know, I think she would have been useless. Well, she's a cleavage scientist, according to Rex Murphy. Cleavage scientist. <laughs> <laughs> it has to do with the seal hunt. It's a, it's a, a long-standing point with Josh and I. Okay, so if I Google that, am I actually going to find... You'll find a Rex Murphy article where he makes fun of people like her and Pamela Anderson that run out onto the ice floes to try to protect seals that don't even get clubbed but okay 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 okay, okay. let's not let's not get into that as you know you, you scratch you scratch a newfoundlander's skin you know it's not far under the surface this kind of stuff lurks sure. oh yeah no that, uh, yeah anyway yeah here we're gonna get the final say on our honor majesty secret service and there after this there is nothing more that can be said about the film like this is definitive here you go uh our grandmother in conversation on her majesty's secret service the title is very fitting because she is something of a matriarch herself. There you go. <laughs> so, Granio, what did you think of On Her Majesty's Secret Service? Uh, well, I gotta understand why he only made one film. You know, I, I didn't, didn't see him as 007 anyway. No, um, 
but did you see him as better or as worse than Timothy Dalton? Oh, no, I like Timothy Dalton better. Oh, that's saying something, because you weren't a big fan of him either, were you? No. Well. No, but, but there's, there's something about him. I don't know what it was. I, I think it was the proudness, the English accent, you know? Remember the first time I saw him, you know, years ago when I first saw the film, that uh, I sort of figured that that's not 007, even then. Well, that's what the public not, not, No, after reading all the books, and you, you have formed um, in your mind, you know, what, what, um, how he could be. But I certainly wouldn't, didn't go down that road. Well, a lot of people would agree with you. You know, when the film was released, um, he was not regarded as, you know, I mean, it's tough. In the, in the very previous film, I think, uh, the one that came before it, You Only Live Twice, um, it was stated on all of the posters, you know, Sean Connery is James Bond, and then they went and got this guy. So I think a lot of people, yeah. a lot of people, and, and it was such such a difference in the two James Bonds. You know, um, he, for instance, he, but he fought the guys. He, he says, "Hell, never even get in a place." <laughs> you mean at the beginning or all through, really? He looked good, let's put it that way, but it, I think it was, he didn't present himself to me like 007. So obviously you watched it for our little project here, our, our fun retrospective. But yes, I watched it last night. Yeah, but when when had you seen it previous? Like how much time had passed since you first Oh, this was when, when I was first married. Oh, you haven't when seen the, it, you haven't seen it since then. Fleming's uh, movies first came out. Yeah, but is that like has it been that long since you've watched it? You've never watched it and in, in, at any other point? Oh, um, well, I'm dying on television in between, but I don't remember ever seeing him, you know, um on television. I, I think the whole, everybody assumed that he didn't portray the James Bond that uh, Ian Fleming wrote about. Yeah, Lazenby or Lazenby didn't have a lot of acting experience he was basically a model and he'd done a couple of commercials and it was in a, a commercial that he was spotted uh, who, de who decides then when they make the film who's going to do be um, 007 well at that time the producers made the decision but um to give lesenby his credit he was quite pushy and uh quite forceful in harry saltzman's office during the um you know during the auditions filming. yeah no the the auditions for filming and yeah. quite interesting, actually, to hear him, the actor, talk about the the way that he got the role, the way he landed it. Okay, was it was it devious or? or well, it was kind he, of. He just yeah, went, It wasn't devious. Went after it, did he? He went after it. Um, he, yeah, he he waited until the receptionist at the desk kind of turned down or, or bent over or something like that, and he just ran up the steps and forced himself into the room and basically said, "I hear you're looking for James Bond," you know. Yeah. Listen, what, what's his nationality? He's Australian. Lazenby is Australian. Australian, okay. I, uh, you said that at the beginning. I, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and I think voice actors, you know, dubbed a lot of what he... But he has such a, a, a snooty English accent. Yes, he did, particularly when he was... Was it put on? In disguise, yeah. That would have been put on and dubbed, I reckon. 
I'm not actually sure okay. who did the ADR, but I'll ask Josh. Josh will know. Yeah, and he, he maybe that was it. He sounded feminine. Oh yeah. Yeah, to me, his voice was and his accent was very feminine. You know. So just a bit too soft overall for you. Yeah, well, all right, let's put it this way. Maybe I was prejudiced because I didn't really see him as 007. What about Diana Riggs? Oh, oh, what's her name? Diana Riggs. I, I was a fan of hers all, all her life. She, does, she did the whole, whole thing, I thought, beautifully. I, I, liked the, I liked her relationship with 007. Mm-hmm. And you know, the fact that she was an only child and, and was spoiled. And did you like the locations that they went to, Switzerland? Oh, yeah, the skiing, too, in particular. Mm-hmm. The skiing was terrific. It was very well filmed, wasn't it? Yeah. Some, yeah. Of, some of those sequences are, they really hold up, even today. Even by today's standards, you know, nearly 50 years later, they still hold up as being really well filmed. Oh, yeah. The, the, everything about it, I thought, was lovely. And, and the fact, you know, what's his name? Kelly Sabalis was... The, the bad guy. Yeah. Everybody knew him and liked him. Let's talk about Kojak. What do you think of him in the film? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess he was okay. I didn't. I didn't find. I saw him in all sorts of things honest. before that. Yeah. And I didn't. But I didn't. You know, I don't think I've ever seen him acting as the bad guy. And the the music. What did you think of the musical score? Oh, I love that song. All the time in the world. You like that one? Oh yeah, that was that was something that I remember. You, you, I used to play it over and over. In fact, when I uh, finished last night, I went over and tried to play it on, again on the uh, you know keyboard. Oh, good for you. Do you have the sheet music for it, or were you just trying by ear? No, I don't. I just pull around until I find it myself. <laughs> and did you? Yes. Oh, yes. Good for you. I know all the you know the, the tune. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. But you had no audience? No, just me. You, <laughs> if you, you would have recognized it if you were there. Oh, of course there. Yeah, sure. That's great. Yeah, and Josh probably would too. I reckon he would, yes. This yeah. is actually one of Josh's... I mean, I don't know how the scoring is going to go yet because we're doing this interview before we, you know, we, we meet on Saturday to talk about it, but... I remember this film being one of Josh's favorites. You see, when this movie first came out, it was, as we said at the beginning, regarded as very uh, different, and the feel of it was different. Everything was a little bit more serious, and people didn't really take to it. But in around the 90s, and it was about the 90s, I think, that it became trendy to see this as a really important canonical Bond film because of the marriage and the death of the wife and the you know the pathos yeah, the yeah. pathos in the story. the story and and the scenery was gorgeous but you know it's all that what is it um, where was it Sweden wasn't it Switzerland Switzerland yes of course mm-hmm. that that was I knew it was an S word yeah and so I I remember talking to Josh when we were into Bond in the. 80s and 90s, I remember talking to him as, as a much younger man, and uh, he, he really likes this one, and I did too, you know, my hands are in the air, I, I really, yeah. I, I jumped on this oh, one. Oh, the story is lovely. The story is very, very good, and it's a compelling narrative, um, but the, the acting this time around, it, you know, I looked at it differently, I tried to look at it objectively now, and um, the story is really good, and there are some beautiful elements in the atmosphere. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's the scenery and the girls. Yeah, the girls. I mean, there was a whole whack of girls there, and they were all beautiful. 
Yep, Joanna Lumley was one of them. She's a, a big figure over here in Dumfriesshire because she lives over here. Is she? Yeah. Which one was she? She was the one who, she didn't actually have a whole heck of a lot of screen time, but she was the one with the hair kind of pulled back in the dark black dress who was doing the knitting. Okay, I think I, I know who, who you're talking about. Yeah, that was her. But I always remember, um, what's her name, Diana Riggs, Bar uh, Barbie, all when she was growing up, every time she they were playing, she wanted to be Diana Riggs. <laughs> Who's that? Barbara. Oh, really? She wanted to be. She wanted to be. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, but that, that's who she, she claimed uh, she was supposed to be. Well, you can have worse role models. <laughs> I know, but she's only a little girl now when all this is going on. This is when they were playing out in the backyard. <laughs> and uh, she let straight on to her. And this, I think that this is something she even remembers today. I want to ask you now about the how the film has kind of lasted with you. You don't like Lazenby as Bond. That's very clear. But what about the yeah. film, what about the film itself? This is the third film now that you oh I like I like the film. I, I like the like I said I like the, the storyline, and I love the scenery. So I mean the only thing about it that I could would even object to would be my idea of James 007 was not. This guy. What's his name again? George who? George Lazenby. La Lazenby, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's the one, I, even more so than any of the others that I didn't see as 007. Well, have you any, uh, like, where do you think this one ranks then in amongst your favorites? Is it up at the top? Okay, well, now, I, I remember, remember when I first saw it, I liked it a lot. Do you think that if George Lazenby had done another film, you may have come around to him a little? I have no idea. I don't think I would think that, no, because I, that was my first, first and only thought. And, I, and even watching it last night, you know, I got the same impression, too, that, that he doesn't look like the Bond that Ian Fleming wrote about. All right, well, thank you for your comments on this one. I'm glad that you enjoyed the movie, and it sounds to me, yeah. though, compared to GoldenEye, which you did enjoy, but The Living Daylight, certainly, you liked this one more. Uh, well, I like the story, and it, I mean, I, and I was, I'm a fan of being planning, so I don't care who they put in there. I still like the, you know, all, I liked all, all these books. Yeah, we're talking about different levels of like, aren't we? Not different levels of hate. Yeah. Right, okay. Right, exactly. Uh, the story was very pleasant. So I'm going to ask you then... Okay. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you last two times. When the dust settles on this, where do you think On Her Majesty's Secret Service will rest? Will it be near the top, near the bottom, or in the middle? Oh, no, no. Well, if Sean Connery was in it, he would be on the top. Okay, so... <laughs> right, well, he's not, unfortunately. Okay, so story-wise, you're talking about. Sure, yeah. I like them all. I I can't. Uh, some of them are ridiculous. You know, like the one where they were the last one where he was he jumped off the cliff and yeah. boarded a plane that was going. You know, that was um, going down. Yeah. What was the name of that? Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Yeah. And that one I thought was ridiculous. Cause nobody can do that. Well, they, they can. <laughs> I mean, they're they're, uh, they're not human. <laughs>
All right, well, thanks, <laughs> thanks for your clarification on that matter. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, hey, hey listen, that's, that's great. When, but what are you going to do next, you know? You don't know. We'll find out on Saturday, and as soon as I know, I'll uh, give you a call after let the me know. table is spun, yeah. and then I'll let you know, and you'll be on board for the next one. Okay, Darren. That'd be lovely. Right, well, I'm glad you enjoyed that one a little bit more, and we'll get you for the next yeah. episode. I don't think I've ever seen a Bond film that I didn't like. No. It's all according to who is James Bond, 007. It seems to be that's the that's the main factor for you, yeah. You'll forgive Connery all of his sins just to have him in the picture, won't you? Yeah, but, see, that doesn't mean any, I don't think about that. I look at Sean Connery, I don't think about his sins. I, I, the fact that he beats up on women, the, <laughs> the, the, the people he associate with, maybe they needed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, I think we'll say goodnight for now, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, darling. Okay. Love you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye, darling. There you go. There's our grandmother's opinion of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which, not surprisingly, turned <laughs> turned into her opinion of Sean Connery, which is defend at all costs, right? Even if he beats up on people, they must have deserved it. <laughs> yeah. So I guess she wouldn't have minded Draco punching his daughter. I guess, I guess not. not. If, if Draco was Connery. Oh, man. Always fun talking to our grandmother there. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was awesome about the piano. That was great. Yeah, it's cool, hey? It's nice to get these little uh, personal stories, too. And even Josh listening to her talk about how uh, how our Aunt Barb used to pretend to be Diana Rigg, you know, from the Avengers in the backyard playing grown up. <laughs> well, so there you go. That That's her two cents, which is really kind of similar to how we saw the film, too, isn't it? I, I think so, yeah, absolutely. I don't think I just like Lazenby as much as she did, but... Uh... Yeah. No, she, she doesn't have... Uh, no back doors with Granny. He's not Sean Connery. It's, it's, no, that's uh, for sure. Yeah. So I'm we... curious what she thinks of Roger Moore once we get into some of his. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. And we're moving yeah. closer, of course, to the selection of our next film. But should we first say a few things about and discuss what Fleming would have thought of this? he would have been overall happy with the adaptation mm -hmm. um of course it's always hard to actually think what he would have thought but i think he probably would have been okay with it i think i, I think he, he would have been okay with it. i don't think he approve of lazenby though yeah i don't know about that because he actually wasn't impressed with connery but when he at, at the casting of when he was casted that's true right? but when he did meet but when he did finally meet Con connery and uh, he actually grew, grew to like him Mm -hmm. He did, yeah. He he thought he was okay. He it wasn't his first pick, his first image of Bond. But David yeah. Niven in the role, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he th he certainly saw someone more like that, a Hoagie Carmichael type of figure. Um, I wonder if, if Fleming would have enjoyed the uh, the device to crack the the safe. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I reckon he probably would. I know that you you liked that, didn't you? Oh, I thought it was. Mm -hmm. I think this is amazing. That I sequence mean, was really good. It was like a computer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, I like the fact that it was like huge and it didn't need an internet connection. That was also refreshing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, yeah, that was great. The best things now, in life Ian don't have... really. <laughs> now, would Ian have liked um, Rig as Tracy or would he have been terrified of her? Yeah. I think he 
I think he probably would have approved. Yeah, because Tracy does have strength in the book. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's not quite the same, but it, it's similar. Uh, she is a. I think he'd probably figure. go after Rig. To be honest with you, probably. You think so? I think so. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let me read you a little bit from Goldeneye, a book by Matthew Parker about um, Ian Fleming's Jamaica. This is the subtitle, in fact, and we've, we've quoted from this before on the show, but this little section, and it's just two paragraphs, on uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was written there. Mm-hmm. The, this new novel, written at Goldeneye in January and February of 1962, was a return to the classic Bond formula and a reprise of Blofeld, whom Bond is hunting at the beginning of the story. He's so frustrated by his lack of success that he even drafts a letter of resignation to give to M, but before he delivers it, he meets Contessa Tracy de Vicenzo, suicidal daughter of a crime boss, Marc-Ange Draco. Draco, another of Fleming's likable pirates, gives Bond information on Blofeld's whereabouts. Impersonating an officer from the College of Arms, Bond meets Blofeld at his mountaintop lair, where Blofeld is infecting impressionable young women with diseases to carry back to Britain. The plot is foiled, but Blofeld escapes again, having killed Tracy just hours after his, her marriage to Bond. On Her Majesty's Secret Service was considered by Bond film scriptwriter Richard Maybaum to be, quote, the best, by far the best Bond novel ever wrote. Its strengths are the set-piece ski chase, which would become a stock ingredient of the films, the attack on Alpine Redoubt, the, and also the real tenderness with which Fleming writes about Bond's feelings for Tracy. It would become the most successful Bond novel to date, selling over 70,000 hardback copies in the UK in the first year and topping the US bestseller chart for over six months. The Observer newspaper also considered it the best Bond for a while. Quote, it is better plotted and retains its insane grip until the end. An American reviewer at the LA Times saw the book's success as a reaction against, quote, the 20th century vogue of realism and naturalism, exactly what Fleming had so unsuccessfully attempted with his previous book. With Fleming, the review went on, we do not merely accept the willing suspension of disbelief, we yearn for it, we hunger for it. In Thunderball, Bond had come once more to the rescue of the United States. In On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the threat is to Britain alone. But it is a country in palpable retreat. We hear about the miracle of the latest German export figures. At the College of Arms, they're busy working on flags, stamps, and medals for the new African states. Bond spends Christmas Day with his beloved M, who regales him with naval stories, quote, all true, and it was all about a great navy that was no more, and a great breed of officers and seamen that would never be seen again, end quote. So there you go. A little bit about the writing of the book. And now, just to give you a taste of the story, guys, I have selected not one of the seminal moments from the text, as you might expect, the death of Tracy or the great ski chase, but instead the moment in the story, which I really like, where Bond decides, because he's very out of shape in this book. Uh, He's very out of shape. He's drinking very heavily, much like the writer was at the time. He's smoking nonstop, much like the writer was at the time. He's ignoring sage advice from doctors and physicians, much like Fleming was at the time. And so you you get a lot of autobiography going on in here. You know, there are facts at work. But at, at the point in this story, chapter 11, titled Death for Breakfast, Bond hears the scream and we understand this is one of the guards at Piz Gloria who was taking a step too far with one of the girls, okay? And it's at this point where Bond realizes that he's in a dangerous position and he decides that he has to maybe take a bit better care of not just his attention to detail, but also his physical fitness. James Bond awoke to a scream. 
It was a terrible masculine scream out of hell. It fractionally held its first high, piercing note, and then rapidly diminished as if the man had jumped off a cliff. It came from the right, from somewhere near the cable station perhaps, even in Bond's room, muffled by the double windows, it was terrifying enough. Outside it must have been shattering. Bond jumped up and pulled back the curtains, not knowing what scene of panic of running men would meet his eyes, but the only man in sight was one of the guides, walking slowly, stolidly, up the beaten snow path from the cable station to the club. The spacious wooden veranda that stretched out from the wall of the club over the slope of the mountain was empty, but tables had been laid for breakfast, and the upholstered chaise lounge for the sunbathers had already been drawn up in their meticulous colorful rows. The sun was blazing down out of a crystal sky. Bond looked at his watch. It was eight o'clock. Work began early in this place. People died early, for that had undoubtedly been a death scream. He turned back into his room and rang the bell. It was one of the three men Bond had suspected of being Russians. Bond became the officer and gentleman. What's your name? Peter, sir. Pyotr, Bond longed to say. And how are all my old friends at Smirsh? But he didn't. He said, what was that scream? Please? The granite gray eyes were careful. A man screamed just now from over by the cable station. What was it? It seems there has been an accident, sir. You wish for breakfast. He produced a large menu from under his arm and held it out clumsily. What sort of an accident? It seems that one of the guides has fallen. How could this man have known that only minutes after the scream? Is he badly hurt? Is possible, sir. The eyes, surely trained in investigation, held Bonds blandly. You wish for breakfast. The menu was once again nudged forward. Bond said with sufficient concern, Well, I suppose the poor chap's all right. He took the menu and ordered, Let me know if you hear what happened. There will be no doubt uh, an announcement if the matter is serious. Thank you, sir. The man withdrew. It was the scream that triggered Bond into deciding that above all things he must keep fit. He suddenly felt that, despite all the mystery and its demand for solution, there would come a moment when he would need all his muscle. Reluctantly, he proceeded to a quarter of an hour of knee bends and press-ups and deep breathing chest expansions, exercises of the skiing muscles. He guessed that he might have to get away from this place, but quick. He took a shower and shaved. Breakfast was brought by Peter. Any more news about this poor guide? I have heard no more, sir. It concerns the outdoor staff. I work inside the club. Bond decided to play it down. He must have slipped and broken an ankle. Poor chap. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, sir. Did the granite eyes contain a sneer? James Bond put his breakfast on the desk and with some difficulty managed to prise open the double window. He removed the small bolster that lay along the sill between the panes to keep out drafts and blew away the accumulated dust and small fly corpses. The cold, savorless air of high altitudes rushed into the room and Bond went to the thermostat and put it up to 90 as a counterattack. While his head below the level of the sill, he ate a spare continental breakfast. He heard the chatter of the girls assembling outside on the terrace. The voices were high with excitement and debate. Bond could hear every word. So there you go. That's a little reading from one of my favorite sections of the story. Oh, that's a, that's a really good little excerpt. Yeah. yeah I like how... Sorry? No, I just said it's good. I'm glad you guys enjoyed that. Yeah. I, I like how the idea of him kind of like realizing that he's in danger yeah. and he has to build himself up and start exercising. It really creates the tension. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I kind of think the spirit of what Fleming was writing there, I think it successfully carried over to the film. Um, now, we know the fact that he escapes from, blow, from yeah. Pitt's Gloria because of certain plot devices in the film. Mm -hmm. But – in the book, obviously, it's more apparent that it's like a it's, it's a decision made by him based on the atmosphere, and and that it's very clear to us why he has to do yeah, it yeah. without being forced upon us that he has to do it. Yeah. But that's the difference between book and book film, and right? Film, exactly. Sure, yeah. 
That's us, bond by numbers. We have run through the numbers, gentlemen, not just the numbers of our scoring, but the numbers of all of our segments, and we are finished with this episode, with one exception, of course. One thing I wanted to mention, though, is we mm-hmm. should say that, like, um, Bond's, uh, the, his family crest was The World Is Not Enough, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's one thing yeah, I we didn't mention in my uh, summary. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't well, mention that, did we? No, we did not. And there's a tie-in to that, too, isn't there, with, with, with one of the last lines, too, about having all the time in the world. The world clearly wasn't enough. It yeah. definitely was not. Ah. But it will, be, it, it will be enough for Pierce Brosnan once we get to that one. Hmm. It's enough for me, if I remember correctly. Correct. <laughs> but, hey, who knows, you know, fresh eyes on all of these. And speaking Correct. of all of these, shall we run the roulette and see what's coming next? Yes. Yes, sir. Well, this is not Russian roulette. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. Here we go, then. Inside wheel spinning. So, what do you think? A Moore or a, or a Brosnan? Who knows? We've had an interesting start to this campaign. Yeah. Let's see how it continues I, now. I appreciate how it's been out here we go, slowing down, ball still bouncing. Great entertainment as always for the listening. I'm on the edge of my seat, literally. Gentlemen, we've landed on red number three. We are going to Goldfinger. Nice. Connery, all right. We're, we're, we're kind of somehow getting into like the top 10 Bond films here. <laughs> it's funny, that's just the way this is spinning out, but red three is what's up, so. It is so what's next? Goldfinger. Like, let it die? <laughs> well, who knows? We don't know what's next, but this is our first Connery. And yeah, you're right. We're starting with a crowd pleaser, a fan favorite. We're going to be looking at Goldfinger in episode five. And I guess, the, and I guess that joke, I, that, joke uh, that I was refraining throughout the thing will come into play, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you, you willed this to happen, didn't you? That was foreshadowing. It was foreshadowing, my friend. <laughs> right. Well, look, guys, this has been uh, it's been great fun today. Any closing remarks on either uh, our show today or what's coming up? Uh, I thought it was a, a long but a great show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean long in a bad way. Uh, we had obviously had a lot of fun, lots of good input. Uh, I'm going to try and have more espionage um, anecdotes for the next one. This one I felt because it wasn't as much sort of MI6 versus, you know, the communists. <laughs> no, there was a bit more of a revenge mission. Yeah, this is a revenge. Well, there's 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 definitely some communists in Goldfinger that you can oh, be yeah. looking at for oh, yeah. sure. And there's some there's some Koreans as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, true. Yes. Um, Just but, wait till uh, we read the book on that part. <laughs> um, so this was this was a really good one. I thought we 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 were very thorough, and uh, it was a, it was a really good uh, episode. And we learned how and we, and we learned how Christmas trees are grown, so even better. Well, we, we didn't part. We didn't part. And with the Christmas holidays coming up, we'll have no trouble in finding the time to do great work, good service on Goldfinger 2. I agree. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, thanks, guys. It's been a blast. And we'll catch you back here next time. Absolutely. Take it easy. Take care. All right. Cheerio. And go decorate your Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> with sunshine and rainbows and ponies. And what else is it that is cited in the song? Um, and love. <laughs> most love. importantly, guys, love. And most importantly, uh-huh. uh, most uh, most and, of all, uh, we're butchering Nina's lyrics here, or or Hal Davis's lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> no, Hal Davis couldn't have written this song. I got to look in. That's another one for the fact checkers. Okay. Fact checkers. Fact, fact checkers. checkers. Get, get to work. Yeah. yeah. Right. Thanks, guys. All right. See you. Have a good one. Take care. Mm-hmm.